right. Recording in progress, and the mic is hotter than it's ever been, Kevin Sharpley. Man, thought it might have been a little bit cold. We haven't been back for a while, but I think we're already ready. Go raring, red hot fire. A lot has happened. We haven't been on the horn for maybe a month and a half. We've been busy. We've been in the lab mixing it up, baby, like Dr. Dre. Get ready to drop the next hot track right here on you. We even got a project together. So that was pretty <laughs> That's cool. That's right. Yes, we have a, a top secret project, which we can only reveal in January. But it is some exciting, exciting stuff coming out of the, the JL Kevin combo there. JL EP. My mm-hmm. company's taking on the visual effects. Ooh, Lordy. All the effects in the house. It's going to be straight fire. A lot of stuff going on in the Hollywood house. Oh, yes. But of course, we have to start by saying this is the one and only Screen Heat Miami with Kevin Sharpley, JL Martinez, and of course, our amazing sponsors, which include Cinevision, Kijik Multimedia, Kamakol, and the Miami Media and Film Market, which did just wrap up its virtual edition our 11th annual mmfm was a hybrid event yes. this year it was great it was pretty cool it was fun it was a lot of fun uh we got to talk to a lot of interesting folks from all over the world and then we had a little live event for our local industry celebrating a lot of folks including yourself my friend and uh and got Screen to talk Heat shop. miami got an award that's right we are an, officially now an award-winning podcast kevin many more to come <laughs> i think so Let's see if, if, if the, what are they called? The potties? I think the, the podcasts have their own award. And I don't think it's the potties. They do. I don't think it's called the potties. No, that, that would just be a disaster. A <laughs> That'd be more like, like the, the 10 worst podcasts of the year. Instead of the Razzies, <laughs> they would be called the potties. There you go. That's, I think see, we, y'all, you're the best equips. You're the best. I think we just started something. An award kind of. just for your quips. <laughs> so. Who are we interviewing today? I mean, I don't even know who the guest is. Who, who, what's today's <laughs> podcast about, Kevin? It's been so long, I forgot. We have we forgot yeah. who we interviewed. So, yeah, our guest this week is super interesting, and it's very much related to what we're going to talk about at the end of the podcast. His name is Robert Rice. His specialty is in augmented reality and virtual reality. The convergence of these environments is called XR. So. This is one of the newer uh, pushes in terms of where entertainment is going. Um, it's not new to me because my company deals in this stuff too, uh, but it's very exciting. Uh, so a lot of people, you know, they announced the death of Bitcoin, they the announced the death of crypto so many times, and just like a zombie, it keeps coming back. Yes back from the dead, back from when everyone thought that it was the end of the world because Bitcoin dropped, what, 20%, 30%, and now everything just cycles back, back around. Up. Back up again. And not only that, I mean, I think what's incredible is it's not just the Bitcoin, but it's the blockchain technology that now you know people are really, really connecting with. We, we have been talking about NFTs for a while, but mm-hmm. NFTs have sparked such a huge movement and it's all about the democratization of the means for the artist to make money. 
directly without the gatekeepers. And so these NFTs have created a whole nother ecosphere and it's just being revealed. No one, it's like the wild, wild west, which we'll talk about this movie called Rust as we move through. Mm. Um, But it's like the wild, wild west. So, you know, there's people out there scamming people, but there's also people there making a ton of money. Um, We've already talked about Beeple who made $62 million, one of the first NFT uh, huge money makers. But there are so many different ways, not only to make money, but ways to uh, encapsulate your media, ways to use the technology for security purposes. So, you know, I think that ultimately we're going to have an episode that's more geared to talking about that. But more than just the Bitcoin, more than just the NFTs, the transformation of the industry has been so dynamic even the, in the past month and a half. We'll talk about the metaverse more towards the end of the show and other sectors of the industry. But before we get into that, we have a humorous aside and not humorous in the funny ha-ha-ha-ha way, but one of the greatest um, comic minds of our time, just, and actors, and he's dramatic as well, um, has inked a huge deal with Amazon. And that's coming off of the heels of such a tremendous success uh, with coming to America, Mr. Eddie Murphy. And I'm headed to Africa myself. That's what I'm saying. You're you're heading in that direction. Yeah, You're going to be hanging out with (laughs) with the Eddies of the world. Uh, Coming to America was a huge hit for Amazon uh, when it debuted back on March 5th. Uh, which basically made it the uh, so far the the number one opening weekend of any streaming movie in 2021, uh, as well as the number one opening weekend of any streaming movie in the past 12 months after the COVID theater closures. Uh, it also came in number one on Nielsen's weekly streaming rankings of all streamed SVOD content. Those are huge numbers uh, from the streaming world. And of course, the one and only Eddie Murphy is the only one that could pull something like that off. And <laughs> <laughs> you bad motherfucker. I know you, Eddie. You are bad motherfucker, Eddie. And to thank Eddie for his wonderful accomplishments, uh, Amazon has uh, graced him with a three picture and first look film, film deal over at Amazon Studios. Uh, where he is set to star in three Amazon Studios films, as well as develop his own original films for Amazon and Prime Video, which he will also have the chance to star in. So Eddie is red hot, white hot. He could not be any hotter right now. Uh, Someone who has been more or less media shy. He's not really on social media all that much, doesn't give a ton of interviews. uh, and, And now to see him just kind of make this huge kind of deal and splash with Amazon shows that he still pulls a ton of weight, particularly within popular culture in general. Look, man, I said it, I'll say it again. All you have to do is get your name out there. Mm. And there's always a way to pivot and pivot back. I mean, Eddie Murphy at one time was the biggest star in Hollywood. So, you know, you have that going for you, but Mm. you know, there's a movie now with Simon Rex um, I can't remember the name of it, but Simon Rex, who was a VJ back in the day of the uh, early aughts. And he has a movie now that's coming out that has a lot of buzz, critical buzz. 
So once you got your name, you carry that fame. How you use yeah. it then. <laughs> I got a little quips. I got a little quips. Um, yeah, speaking how you, of quippers. <laughs> how, you, how you use that, you know, to make your pivot, which that's what this industry has been the past couple of months, all about the pivot, um, is up to you. You know, and so Eddie Murphy really has come at, come back in such a tremendous red hot way. Uh, congratulations to one of the greatest entertainment. I said comic minds, of course. You know, he started with stand up, but um, one of the greatest well, I, entertainment minds. I was going to say the only thing that could top coming to America is probably his next stand up special, which he's been teasing us with for the past couple oh, years. Oh man. If he comes back oh, with a one-hour special and drops that shit, that'll Oof. blow everything up out of the water. Woof. Woof. I can't wait to see the follow-up to Ice Cream Man. That's going to be fantastic. Can't wait. Can't <laughs> wait. But, um, you know, we're talking about number one gonna wines. Be, we're, talking about number, we're talking about number wines. We're talking about top stars, right? Top stars. Um, uh, number one film of all time for Netflix. Yes. Speaking we of number talked one, about red. Yes. Yes. The color red. Yes. The color red. Red Notice, starring uh, uh, South Florida's very own. We will claim him because he is all about the U. Dwayne the Rock Johnson, uh, uh, whose production company Seven Bucks Productions, which is run by his ex-wife, still manager and producing partner Danny Guns, uh, Danny Garcia. Uh, who is uh, a talent in her own right, Cuban-American from Miami, who runs his production company. This is their first official production as a production house with Netflix, Red Notice, uh, which dropped at number one for Netflix and just did huge bonzo numbers. When number it one of all time. It debuted yes. at number one. It's the most watched movie that they've ever Most had. watched movie that Netflix has ever had. Uh, and they have a budget to prove it. Apparently, it was also their highest budgeted feature film production uh, at around $200 million uh, is what it cost to bring together not only The Rock, but Gal Gadot and, jeez, uh, 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 you know what? I always, I always, I look at the guy's face and he's so popular. And when I say, I, I just forget the name Ryan Reynolds and it's such a common name, but like something about, like I like Ryan a lot, but when I look at him, I'm just like, oh, he's just not quite Tom <laughs> Hanks. Not uh, quite no. as well as Tom Hanks, but yeah, he's close. But, yeah, he has a, <laughs> you know, he is Ryan Reynolds in every role. So yeah, it, it is that. But he um, is that guy. <laughs> he is that guy. That's right. Um, so Red Notice, number one movie, Rock carried that movie on his shoulders. Yeah. Well, he's got is, quite the shoulders to do that. <laughs> he does. Yep. Um, there is some pushback on this movie. Yes. And, and this is something, obviously, Kevin, you're from the visual effects and animation world. Uh, for, for the budget it had, uh, and Screen Rant pointed this out, it looked rather cheap. Uh, and part of the reason is they did, you know, uh, in all fairness, shoot a lot of the movie during what was still considered the COVID era. Uh, and even though it's set all over the world, right, from Rome to Russia to, you know, at one point they're in Bali, uh, it, it was actually shot pretty much all on a green screen on a soundstage in Georgia. And, Ambitious. Uh, 
Ambitious. Yes, very ambitious. And and so for the keen visual effects eye, you could tell that some of the scenes looked a little, mm, I wouldn't say amateurish, but <laughs> not, not quite up to par, not at the Jurassic Park level of realism, uh, which again, that was a film made in the early 90s. So imagine how technology has evolved since then, uh, but fell a little flat in that sense. Yeah, I mean, what you said is true. It was shot, you know, in that kind of in the pandemic era. And also part of it was in a shutdown, you know, mm -hmm. era. So, you know, a lot of it had to be shot not on location, but right. in on location in a studio. Um, but two hundred million dollars. You didn't mention the price tag at yeah. 200, at two hundred million dollars. Um, a lot of people expected, you know, just a little bit more in terms of the effects department. Um, yeah. I don't yeah. know. You're, you're right. My company does visual effects and we, and we do animation and a lot of, you know, the pipeline of how you do animation and visual effects is that they're mm. the same, but um, you know, I didn't really pay attention too much to the visual effects when I watched the movie uh, because I said the rock carries it, it carries it on his shoulders. Um, you know, so the rock and, you know, this kind of, you know, relationship between The Rock and Ryan Reynolds. I was a little bit more focused on that. And then, of course, you had Gal Gadot and her beautiful self. God um, damn, fine, though. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah. But when just, I went back and I looked, um, yeah. you, know, you did see some of the deficiencies in the visual mm. effects department. Yes. Uh, that and, and script-wise, to be honest, and I, I told you that I was going to give a mini-review of yeah. this project, of this film, which I thought, again, love the actors. They're very charismatic, some of my favorites, but I just felt story-wise, it felt a little repetitive. Like I felt there were so many scenes where it's like, all right, we're in a pickle and it's Ryan Reynolds in The Rock and all of a sudden Gal Gadot shows up or that sort of Eastern European detective lady, I couldn't quite place her. Uh, yeah. And she would just magically randomly show up and cause trouble. And it yeah. felt like it was like a wash, rinse, repeat kind of thing. Yeah. And let's do the scene in Russia. Now let's do the same scene in Rome. And now <laughs> let's go. And it's like, eh. it, but it was fun. I liked that, you know, it was kind of a subtle homage to other spy movies. It was tongue in cheek. You know, it, it was kind it was of a little Indiana Jones thrown in. Yeah, there. a little Indiana Jones thrown in there. Um, but it, I didn't feel like it was totally going to be a, for the spoof the way that Mike Myers did, for example, you know, with his yeah, because it was, the thing is, it wasn't fully spoof, which it is wasn't fully comedy. Mike Myers, it was, yeah. yeah, it wasn't drama. It was kind of like in this kind of nether world in between ish place. Yeah, but um, you know, all I can say is, let's see what they come with on the second. I felt I was kind of like at a, at a mediocre potluck dinner, whereas I was just kind of like, <laughs> guys, pick a theme. Just, yeah. we can go all Indian, we can go all Italian, we can go all Mexican, but don't mix the three. Yeah. yeah. Somebody <laughs> just don't sit quite right <laughs> in the stomach. Yeah. Um, but you know what? The film did so well. Apparently there are sequels being planned already. Uh, so obviously, you know, we're, we're homers. We wish the best for The Rock and for Danny Garcia and Seven Bucks Productions. And That's we right. hope they keep churning out amazing content. Yep. Yep. All about the you. Go Canes, um, baby. Yeah. Even though um, Manny Diaz got to go. Um, anyway, so. Um, <clears throat> like, 
Lane Kiffin, where you at? Anyway. <laughs> um, there is a, there is an ongoing debate in Hollywood, and this has to do with whether a film makes a profit or not. Right. And this is no bohemian, artsy-fartsy, you know, nebulous kind of debate whether, you know, it's going to happen or whether it does happen or whether it, you know, this is dollars and cents. And this is dollars and cents when it comes to people that have some of the back-end deals of -hmm. these movies. And so there's a case, and this is coming to America, actually. A case with Buckwald, who was a producer on Coming to America, and he took Hollywood to court because he claimed that they did not pay him his back end money. And so that opened up a Pandora's box because they had to open up the books. And when they opened up the books, it showed that coming to America never made a profit. Right. The never ending bottom line. Mm. Now he ended up winning the lawsuit, but I think he only won a dollar or some, you know, kind of small amount. It it became more like a symbolic symbolic, but here we are again. Yeah, here we are. It's, uh, you know, they say Hollywood's a creative industry, and that also includes most studios accounting departments. And so <laughs> in, in this particular case, uh, we're talking about the screenwriter of Bohemia Rhapsody, uh, Anthony McCartan, uh, who, who I have a history with. I, I, I was at an agency that received the first draft of his screenplay about 20 years ago uh, called The Theory of Everything, and we can go into more detail on that later. Uh, but this gentleman had, uh, after that film came out, which had a lot of Oscar buzz and did very well, uh, had a nice run, including Darkest Hour, uh, which uh, the, the, uh, uh, the film that, that did very well for him as well, uh, and with Churchill at sort of the center of that great little film. And then obviously Bohemian Rhapsody, probably by far of the three films, the most commercially successful, one would think, a film that uh, basically had around a $55 million production budget, yet grossed over $900 million at the global box office. Uh, In spite of that, uh, according to the writer, and this is in Variety, uh, he received a couple of notices. The first one uh, saying that the film was still $100 million in the red. And then a follow-up note saying, well, now, hey, the film has only lost $51 million. Uh, So we're almost there. And so, you know, according to Anthony, uh, part of the reason he made the deal with uh, a very major producer, Grant King, uh, who's known for giving very low upfront fees, but promising a lot on the back end was that he would be very well rewarded should the film uh, be financially successful. Now, you know, I understand that there's PNA. We know that there's marketing. We know there's a lot of things that go into making a film successful beyond, uh, the quality of the story and the characters and the actors and of course the screenplay and the directing itself. But when you look at a $55 million budget and you look at a $900 million haul at the box office, that's quite the leap. That, that there's, there, there were a lot of expensive Beverly Hills lunches in there to keep that thing in the red. That's a black hole bottom line. <laughs> Never going to see it. Never ending. Yeah. And it's, uh, 
but we'll see where it goes. I mean, look, uh, it seems like a lot of the artists, a lot of the creative class, uh, I think we talked a little bit about Scarlett Johansson uh, and what she was able to achieve with Marvel yeah. and Disney. And it seems a lot of folks, you know, from the WGA, you know, we saw what almost happened with IATSE and now this Bohemian Rhapsody story that artists and crews are fighting back against this system, uh, which de definitely favors the producers. It definitely favors the studios. Um, it favors the major agencies. And now it seems like we're at a point where it's a tipping point almost where the artists are kind of fighting back, you know, uh, and, and it feels like they're starting to win some of these cases, if not in court, at least in the court of public opinion. And that, you know, these guys did this work, they sacrificed, they wrote the scripts, they act in the movies. They're a, a big reason why the public goes to see them that they should be remunerated accordingly. Yeah. And, and so there is a case to be had there. And so maybe unlike, you know, the $1 sort of uh, uh, symbolic gesture of the late 80s now could mean something different because uh, of social media and technology and everything kind of coming into play and the artist having a voice outside of the traditional means. And so, you know, again, this is the type of thing that probably wouldn't have made uh, a lot of buzz 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, it would have just been a lot of infighting between agents and lawyers and managers. And at some point they come to an agreement, right? You know, because as an artist, you want to keep working, you know, you don't want to sort of go straight into this world of suing everybody because that's the number one way that you may not work again. Uh, so you want to find a smart way to go about this as well. But we're in an age now where, you know, in the post Me Too era, that everyone wants to stake their claim, you know, everything from the screenwriters and the, the A-list actors to the crews and even the production assistants. Everybody wants their fair share. Yeah. Uh, and then the question is, what is fair? You know, my, speaking of my agency days, uh, the head of our department had a great quote, you know, uh, and I'll share it very quickly now. He used to say, you know, uh, he used to call me San Jose. San Jose, uh, we get a call from a client and they get an offer on a job. And I ask the client, well, what do you want to make? And the client says, well, I want to make what's fair. Fair enough. Hangs up the phone, calls the studio. We want to make a deal. The client's interested. You guys want to hire him. What do you want to pay? What does the studio say? I want to pay what's fair. <laughs> okay. Hangs up the phone, looks at me and says, you know what's fair? Fair is whatever you can get. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. That, absolutely. So at the end of the day, there'll be a back and forth. There'll be a negotiation. I'm sure a magical bonus will appear out of thin air to make Anthony happy and they'll just go on to the next thing. Yeah. I mean, I think in this case, it's going to be different than the Buckwald because, you know, the court of public opinion is a lot different now than it was mm -hmm. then. And the public has a lot more say. Right. So, you know, let's see how it plays out. But Bohemian Rhapsody critically praised uh also you know made a ton of money commercially successful nobody wants backlash against that kind of thing in these in this day and age twitter can be vicious um Absolutely. social media can be vicious so we'll see how that plays out um there's something else playing out something that you know unfortunately um is not the best scenario uh you don't have this happen that often and it has not happened that often but uh there was a death 
in a film mm. called Rust. Mm. Uh, Alec Baldwin, unfortunately, um, shot a rising yeah. young star, a rising yeah. young DP, and um, that resulted in a death. And yeah, you know, yeah. They, no, absolutely, you're right, and and obviously our condolences to Helena Hutchins' family and everyone that's had to deal with this tragedy. And and like you said, she was a rising star, one of the few uh, female cinematographers in our industry that was doing great things and had such an amazing trajectory ahead of her as an artist in her own right. Uh, so to see this tragedy in Rust, that's just terrible. Um, you know, knowing how hard it is for anyone, particularly a female, to get to that level uh, and to be the cinematographer of a feature film, you know, with a star like Alec Baldwin is a huge deal. And so that was just a tragedy. Uh, and, and obviously, look, I think by all accounts, this was a legit accident. No one intended to shoot or kill anyone that day, but it did raise a lot of questions, right? And that's what everyone's trying to get at now is, how could this have happened? How could have this been avoided? How can it be avoided in the future? You know, what can we do better? And a lot of eyes are now on the producers and the production company itself uh, that were sort of in charge, supposedly. At some point, someone has to be in charge, right? Someone has to, you know, the buck stops here, has to end somewhere, yeah. you know? And uh, for indie films, as we know, very hard to get financing for an indie film. Uh, these things usually come from multiple sources. A lot of times it has to do with a lot of uh, financial mechanisms, including tax credits and incentives and all sorts of loopholes in the system that allow these transactions to happen. Uh, and now, according to Hollywood Reporter, uh, a lot of red flags are being raised from the producers of this film, not particularly uh, Alec Baldwin, who is credited as the producer, but some of the other producers who have had issues in the past, obviously not a tragedy like what happened on the set of, Rut, of Rust, sorry, but uh, in terms of how to run a production properly, yeah. uh, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, still, even though it's an indie film, we're talking about millions of dollars. We're talking about, you know, uh, hundreds of people being put to work in a location, oftentimes a long way from their homes. And there's a certain care that needs to go into each and every production. And the producers are usually the ones that have to say, look, this is how we're going to organize this. This is how we're going to make sure that everything happens on time, on budget, but in a safe manner. Uh, unfortunately, it seems like some of the producers have a history of not only not paying actors on time or not paying crew on time, uh, but also creating a system where the film itself is only a byproduct of the financial incentive linked to all these tax credits and incentives. Yeah. And so when the film itself becomes a byproduct and not the central focus of everyone from the creative team to the technical team to the business team, then you have huge problems. A lot of things fall through the cracks. It's no longer what's the best way forward, it's what's the cheapest way forward, what's the most economical way forward. And you can see when you kind of follow that thread from beginning to end, that just kind of opens the door to things like this happen. Yeah. And you know, at the end of the day, we know it's, it's not show friends, it's show business. There is uh, an economic side to this industry. You know, you wanna produce a product for X and sell it for Y, we get it. But when you're dealing with things like special practical effects, firearms, 
car chases, stunts. As you know, you know, we've all been on sets. Uh, Those are highly, highly dangerous things. You know, you're dealing with very sensitive situations that can easily go out of control, especially when you have a crew that's inexperienced, that's working long hours, uh, that hasn't had enough rest, that feels already frustrated and annoyed because they haven't gotten paid on time. All those things seem to have bubbled over into this one moment that happened, unfortunately, on the set of Rust. Yeah, so you gave a lot of the background of the background. And what's come out is that is kind of top level, you know, with some of the producers having had these projects that, you know, have had issues. And, And this is not Alec Baldwin per se, you know, he was just a producer oftentimes. The big stars have their production companies attached because right. they're they're big stars. But some of the producers perhaps have had projects that you know they've just moved through the pipeline and you know they're just squeezing these projects out one by one very fast, one by one by one. Um, and so that's some of the bigger background of it. But even on a more granular level, you know, you have an armorer who has never handled firearms in this way young 25 year old armor her father's legend you know right. once upon a time in hollywood was i think his movie his last movie um and so you know this young armor who you know maybe was not um as well versed not right. even maybe we know she wasn't as well versed and so right. you have you know a lot of these systemic issues the um the first ad had problems on uh yeah. not the prior project but the project before that that he was fired off of that project and so right. you know you have things falling through the cracks and this is an unfortunate situation where a lot of things fell through the cracks but you know we're looking i'm going to go back to the rock um every, that everyone loves um we're hopefully this creates systemic changes the rock uh, stated that he's no longer going to have live firearms on any of his productions. They're using right. rubber bullets um, from this point forward. He doesn't care how much money it costs. But if, mm-hmm. of course, The Rock is making all the money in the world. Um, but that that's that's neither here nor there. You know, when it comes from the top, you know, The Rock is you know kind of at the top rungs of the industry. We hope that it sprinkles down and it creates the type of systemic changes that um, you know create an environment where this kind of thing never happens again. So we had to address it, even going into our next guest. We're super excited for our next guest, Robert Rice. Things are changing in this industry, and this is a part of the big change. So here we go, Robert Rice. And we're live now with Robert Rice. I've been looking forward to this. How you doing, Robert? I'm doing pretty good. How's it going, Kevin? It's going great. It's going great. It's a nice uh, cloudy day here in Miami. It's raining a lot, but um, I love it because I have a garden out in the back and the garden, I'm sure, is soaking up all that energy from the rain. Awesome. Big believer in energy and that whole energy transference. So what I do want to talk about as we move on in the interview is how much I'm loving how blockchain has really morphed 
into a great engine and driver for the film media and entertainment industry. I mean, it's really incredible. So, you know, we'll get into that a little bit later, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about you, your company and what you guys are doing now? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, so yeah, it, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy and a little bit exciting actually. So uh, for a little bit about me, I'll try to be brief because it usually takes three or four beers in like five hours right, to do the life story. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm a tech entrepreneur. I'm based in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, I'm also an army brat. So, you know, grew up in the military. Uh, uh, I've been all over the place. I, I can't even tell you how many countries and continents and but I've had some real crazy experiences. But anyway, long story short, uh, I find myself now, you know, as the founder of Transmira and we're building the metaverse. I mean, like legit, like honest to God, the Oasis Matrix, you know, everybody always says, oh, we're building the metaverse, but they're actually not. Um, I've spent years trying to figure out how this works, how to put together, how to make it. And then I figured it out and which is, you know, that's awesome. Um, but then I found other people that saw what I, I've got together. I'm like, oh my God, this actually makes sense. This is doable. Like, let's do it. So that's suddenly, suddenly where we're at. And people are just now kind of beginning to, I guess, grasp at the edges of, of kind of the vision and how it fits together. Whereas, you know, two, three, four, five, you know, 10 years ago, they looked at me like I had, you know, I don't know, CD-ROMs growing out of my ears, right? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, we're doing some amazing stuff. And it's kind of, the other cool thing too is, is we're not going to take like a 10-year development cycle to do it. We're literally launching some things in the next like 30 days and then more like in two months. And then, you know, more by the time October rolls around. And then by, I think January, January at CES is probably where we're going to drop like the big bomb and like really blow people's minds. So everything up to this, that that point is going to be like a little prelude, like a little bit of hints and tastes of this is cool and this is cute. And yeah, this is kind of fun. And then it's going to be like, oh, my God, what just happened to see where did these guys come from? And I'm going to be sitting in the corner with this great big, you know, Cheshire cat, you know, grin on my face going, yeah, I told Kevin like seven months ago, this is going to happen. Nobody believed me, but here we are. So. I love it. I love it. And that that's really what we like to do here at Screen Heat Miami is we like to kind of get on hold of things before they really take off. But XR has legs. It's already kind of taken off. And we're going to get into that in a minute. But I just want to touch on something that you said, which is the metaverse. A lot of people are becoming familiar with that type of ter terminology. You know, we had in Enter the Spider-Verse a couple of years yeah. ago. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's about, you know, dimensional theory and, and all of that. But can you just give us a little bit of a key into the metaverse? And, you know, I'm quite sure that's connected into XR. So yeah. can you can you talk about that? Yeah. So so there, there's uh, there's two definitions. Um, if you go and you just Google around a little bit and kind of, you know, see what people have to say, the general definition of metaverse or or how people are using it is this idea of a bunch of interconnected 3D worlds. So imagine if you connected, I don't know, uh, Valheim, Red Dead Redemption, you know, Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, Second Life, the Central Link, and you could like move around between them. You know, again, very much like uh, the Oasis and Ready Player One. And, and that's kind of cool. Um, but from my perspective, and, and maybe this is just because, you know, we're sitting on the East Coast and not in the, the West Coast echo chamber, you know, as it were, we think differently. Um, I think that, you know, that definition is really more of a multiverse, you know, a multiple number of worlds. And okay, that's cool. 
But when I think about, you know, meta, what meta means, it's like, it's all encompassing, it's in between, you know, it's like this bigger, bigger, higher level sort of thing. Uh, you, you know, one of the, I guess, one, one of the light bulbs that went off for me was, you know, it's not about the 3D worlds, it's really about the bigger thing and how it impacts the real world itself. Um, and it's like, you know, what, what does that mean? So it's cool if I can go to a Minecraft server and play around, or if I can go to, you know, Decentraland or Second Life, I'm going somewhere else. There's no meaning to me. There's no context to my daily life. It's just, it's like, it's an escapism sort of thing. It's like an ephemeral dream. I like using the word ephemeral. I thought I was going to try to get it in here today. Um, but when you go back to meta, right? We think about, you know, augmented reality and virtual reality and, and other things like digital twins, you know, or, um, you know, the Terminator vision, the Iron Man's, you know, heads up display. It's like, I think all these things together are, are even like, you know, the holograms on a minority report, right? cool technology i think you have to blend them all together to really build that metaverse so not only are you encompassing these multiple you know 3d fun worlds that are out there but you're also experiencing you know 3d versions of the real world around you as well as all the cool augmented reality stuff where i can you know, hold up my phone or put on a pair of apple glasses and then see the hidden world of like you know data and visualizations and and like 3d you know dinosaurs roaming around and and like just this crazy stuff and that's uh that's that's where we're focusing and, and that's kind of where you know i ended up going with like uh with xr you know it's it's not just ar it's not vr and it's real pain in the neck trying to explain those people all the time to do both right so it's like x x is all the things it's the the unknown variable um and it's also x marks the spot which i think is really clever and very proud of that right but you know context and relevance you you need to have that for amazing experiences and the best way to get that is to start with your location, you know, who you are, where you are, what's around you, who's around you. And when you take that sort of um, uh, perspective, it kind of suddenly changes the, the taste and tenor of what the metaverse is or could be. And it kind of goes from, you know, when, when people ask, you know, tell me the difference between AR and VR, you know, AR is where you are, VR is where you're going. And people tend to view that as two different ends of a, like a horizontal spectrum, one's on the left, one's on the right, they're both different. But in our case, I want to blend it all together. So we view it as like a vertical stack. So it's your location at the bottom, then like IoT, you know, data and sensors, whatever, and then augmented reality, and then these 3D digital twins, which are like copies of the real world. And then we get to the 3D, you know, World of Warcraft, and then we get to the cool VR stuff, right? So it's it's like a it's a path or a pyramid. And when you view it that way, and it's all connected, and then you add in, you know, uh, some commerce, monetization, and those things like that you suddenly have this, this thing that you can do like a billion things with in multiple industries and whatever. And it completely surpasses this idea of, Hey, I have an avatar and I went from second life over to Decentraland. It's like, yeah, cool, <laughs> right. bro. You know, give me a beer. Right. It's like, yeah. Right. You know what I mean? So, so that's my definition of the metaverse. Other people would completely disagree. Um, but yeah, metaverse is not Fortnite and it's not, you know, Red Dead Redemption. Yeah. And you know, I love this whole thought of, you know, collateralizing the experience. So it's more experiential across all the platforms than- 100%. Than feeling, you know, kind of disconnected. I'm over here now, you know, I'm out there. So I'm gonna break that down and get a little bit more granular on it. But I said, I was gonna get back to XR. You coined that, that term XR, is that correct? Um 
Well, that's arguable. Uh, Yes, I coined it and I will fight to the death anybody that says otherwise. But, you know, sometimes, you you know, you you have Tesla on one end of the room, you've got Marconi on the other end of them both claiming to invented the radio independently, right? Tesla obviously did and he won. Um, But in my case, you know, I, I, I coined it back in 2014. I actually have some documentation for it. Um, but apparently somebody somewhere did like a little meme graphic or something more and it says XR in it. Like, okay, well, just because you put XR somewhere doesn't mean you defined it and gave it meaning and right. then, you know, propagated it through your network. So yeah, I'm going to lay claim, but you know, it's, I'm, I'm easy going. I didn't trademark it, you know, my bad, but it's all good. That's my contribution to humanity. We'll go with that. Yeah. It's too bad. We couldn't have had that authenticated on the blockchain uh, back then. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to talk a little bit about the entertainment space because mm-hmm. there's a lot of excitement in general in terms of kind of experiencing this in terms of how people are going to interact with this greater you know, metaverse. So can you talk about some of the applications? Uh, I would love to talk about some of the applications. Um, and since you mentioned entertainment, I'll, I'll kind of focus in this area. I mean, I could talk about cemeteries too, but I, don't, I think that'd be kind of boring. So we'll just put that one off to the side. <laughs> so, so there's two specific specific use cases I hit on. Um, and, and which one I want to start with? Okay, so I'm sure you and everybody else is, has seen like, like Pokemon Go, right? Yeah, right. I walk around, I collect the Pokemon. Yay, super fun. I'm a grown adult and I'm running around screaming like a little girl because I just got Pikachu, right? Okay, that, that's fun. That's a good AR experience. And that was a lot of people's entry point, right? Um, but again, my, my perspective, I, like, I always like to go beyond and expand and like, you know, what are they missing? What, what did they stop? And what do they not do? And I thought, you know, if you think about, you know, Pokemon Go or if you're familiar with like Crypto Kitties, which is just, you know, insanity when people are spending on all that sort of stuff or, even if you think back as far as like the old Tamagotchi, you know, you know, sort oh, of days. Oh, right. Right. I thought, you know, why can't I have a little 3D Pikachu that follows me around in AR, right? Or a 3D parrot that can perch on my shoulder. Or, you know what? I'm feeling kind of goth today. I want a whole bunch of ravens just like circling around me like nonstop. It'd be really super intimidating to all my friends with their little Pikachus, right? Um, and then if I can do that, what if we layer in some cool like game AI? So now I can say sit and it'll sit right or i can feed it or i can pet it or heck maybe i can i can breed it with my friends you know i got a black cat you got a white cat let's make a calico and now we've got a unique you know a neat pet it's easy stuff to do so like okay we're gonna we're actually doing that um it's gonna be cool actually later this summer we're calling (laughs) it meta pets because meta right yeah but when you think about okay well that's really neat so i just got it off my phone and now i'm putting it in the real world and and there's we're lingering all these really fun technologies to just make it super interactive and like a really super fun thing, right? And then I thought, okay, that's great from the entertainment side. But again, I like to look beyond that. We thought, well, you know, what are some other or implications or uses here that actually gives it value, right? Again, I can click, you know, 50 Pikachu on Pokemon Go and you know, so what, right? What does that do for me? There's nothing. We thought, well, you know, if we give like young people, um, you know, 3D, you know, pets. I want a dragon. I want a, you know, llama or an alpaca, whatever. I, I can be an owl if you're an Harry Potter fan. Super easy. But, you know, what would that do for, for people that you know, live in apartments that can't have pets or people that are alone and kind of just need something that they can kind of, you know, relate to? Or what if you're, you're a kid struggling with bullying or maybe you're super shy and you, you, how do you break the ice with a cute girl in the sixth grade, right? I mean, that, that's, I had a hard time with that. 
but if I had a rocking, you know, pet in the cafeteria and I was showing off and, you know, her pet kind of came over and they did like the little, the little pet happy dance. Now we've got a way to connect and, and I can, I can kind of socialize and be a little vicarious through my little, my little pet or my menagerie of pets, I mean, whatever that may be. And I think when, when you start thinking about you know, AR and VR tech and go beyond the, the fun, sexy, fun stuff and really think about the implications, I think that's where stuff really opens up. And then that intent then turns around and really just blows out the possibilities and kind of gives you this whole emergent behavior and these other applications like, wow, this is cool and fun. And yeah, maybe the kid's going to love, you know, I don't know, My Little Pony or, you know, Hello Kitty Metapets, but there's other value here, right? So that's in one end. And then on the other end, the system that we've built out allows us to basically geolocate, you know, AR content pretty much anywhere. I mean, literally tell me, here's my speed address. I said, okay, fine, Kevin. You know, drag and drop, bang, you know, pull out your phone, there's a Tyrannosaurus Rex in your backyard. I mean, that, that's pretty cool. I can just, just do that. But then we thought, okay, again, how do we expand that? How do we do something even cooler? So instead of just doing it based on location, what if we did something else like, like triggering it off of, um, you know, an audio signal or like you know, on TV or something? So I thought, okay, well, you know, for me, the difference between a 3D puppy, a 3D cube, and a 3D hologram, hot, sexy avatar, they're all the same. Like it's just, just polygons. So what if instead of me talking to the corner of my room to Amazon Alexa, right? Hey, Alexa, what's the weather? What if I could represent Alexa as a wicked cool life-size 3D hologram? I'm talking to the hologram now. Never mind the, the pod in the corner. I'm talking to the hologram. That's awesome. But what if that hologram could be Kim Kardashian or Darth Vader or, or you know, pick your favorite sports athlete guy or whatever. And maybe I want them eight feet tall or four feet tall, right? It's, it's just, it's just graphics. So suddenly, you know, like now I'm like, okay, wow, how cool would it be to have you know, I don't know, uh, Britney Spears or Kanye West or do a concert in my living room in 3D as a hologram during like the halftime show of the football. I'm not going to be looking at the TV. I'm going to be looking at the hologram. And now we can do this amazing experience like right in your living room. And then we can even customize it to the individual because everybody's got different phones and we'll know, okay, this guy likes rap. This guy likes country. This guy likes something else. So they're all going to get a different, <laughs> a different experience. And then that then in turn creates more revenue for all the artists and celebrities and whatever. I mean, there's so many ways to, to play with that or, or like, you know, I don't know, it's just, just amazing stuff. And that's barely just scratching the surface in terms of looking at, you know, entertainment and information in a different way, right? Most people think entertainment equals game or entertainment equals a passive thing that I sit and watch. But if you approach AR and VR the right way and not just as a, you know, like a lot of VR stuff, it's still very passive, right? I mean, yeah, it's interactive, but it's not life-changing. But with the way we're approaching things, we're trying to make it where not only it is life-changing, but, you know, as an experience or experiential marketing, but there's other things we're doing where it can be life-changing in other ways to help you, you know, grow personally or grow out of your situation or, or make money or learn or experience stuff that you can't any other way. Yeah. That's a long answer, but. No, no, no. We, we love the long answers. Because okay. it gives us more of an understanding of how this is all going to come into place. I mean, you mentioned Minority Report, which when that movie came out, it really felt far off. But if you look at the movie, you'll see a point where, um, I can't remember the antagonist, but he picks up a, an earbud and puts it in his ear and he's talking on the phone. Yeah. That seemed very, Hello. very, very far away, you know? And that's today. So AirPods, yeah. 
yeah, AirPods or, you know, Galaxy Buds or whatever you want to call them. So having this kind of understanding right now then allows people to connect and see what's coming down the pipeline. But there's also monetization to this. There's, and there's two things that, that, one big thing that we talk about is intellectual property, you know, in, in the film, media and entertainment industry. But I think in industries as, as a whole, but also there's a monetization that can happen with this in terms of, um, you know, locations and in terms of, uh, you know, actual edifices and buildings and, and, you know, those kind of things. So can you speak on this connection of the intellectual property and the connection with the physical space and having, yeah, for sure. you know, ownership over the physical space and the so, virtual so space? I'll, I'll start with the, uh, the other monetization side or the IP side first, because I think that, that's important. Uh, and this is also incidentally, one of the areas where, where blockchain really shines, right? You know, when blockchain kind of first came out, remember that tea company, they were like, hey, we're doing blockchain and like their stock went through the roof. People were like, you're a tea company. What are you doing with blockchain? They were like, we don't know, but it sounded <laughs> cool and our stock just like quadrupled. So we'll figure it out, right? I still think a lot of people are like that. They don't quite get blockchain or they hyper-focus in on the craziness with, you know, oh, how much is Bitcoin you know, worth today? Or how much is Ethereum worth today? Like, uh, whatever, I mean, you're missing the underlying tech. That's the amazeballs thing that's happening here. But even then, it's not, you know, useful for everything, but it's crazy useful for some things. And in this particular case, it's crazy useful. So, you know, we, we, one of the things that we do, and this is related to, to, the, to the IP stuff, is we can link a 3D object directly to like a real world, you know, product or service offer, right? Again, think about Pokemon Go. I find a 3D Starbucks coffee cup on my phone. I pick it up. I go to Starbucks. They give me a free coffee. I redeem it on the spot. And then maybe I'll buy a muffin or some toast while I'm there. That's pretty cool. Okay. But what happens if, uh, I don't know, Tesla says, hey, we're, you know, we're going to give away like five Tesla cars. Find a 3D Tesla, you get the car. That's pretty awesome. Up until somebody hacks it and there's suddenly 500 3D Tesla cars rolling around. And Robert's on the hook going, I don't know what happened. I can't afford 500 Teslas. This is a problem. But if it's all on blockchain and we kind of tokenize it all, you can show up with your fake Tesla 3D coffee and I go, mm -hmm, it ain't on this blockchain. That's a fake. So have a nice day. And by the way, I'm calling the cops while you're here, right? And I won't be on the hook anymore. I'm only giving away the, you know, whatever the Tesla, the Tesla wants. So right, right off the bat, blockchain will save my butt a whole lot, but it also helps to kind of verify and validate things, right? And then from yet another perspective, um, when you think about, um, you know, making money or monetizing, right? You're an artist, you're a graphic artist, you're a 3D artist, you're a painter, you know, whatever. And people are talking about all these, these NFTs or non-fungible tokens, which is kind of cool, right? You buy the token and you, you get the, the crypto punk or whatever. But what most people don't realize is that most of the time you own the token, but you don't actually own the copyright or the asset or the ownership of the other thing. And, you know, and if that image gets taken offline, you still own the token, yay for you but nothing else. And then on top of all that, okay, so I've got a token for the Mona Lisa. Yay, I'm awesome. Um, but it's in my wallet. So what does that mean? I, what can I do with it? This is like nothing, right? It's, it's useless. But if we say, hey, we're going to connect it to. So you come to me with your, your fancy Mona Lisa art or this cool digital piece that you've done. We'll tokenize it, do all that sort of fun stuff. 
but we'll also store it on blockchain. So let's say it's like the Mona Lisa, right? You do a high-res scan, then you scan like all the, the certificate of authenticity, the provenance, where you bought it, you, all that sort of stuff. So if there's ever fire, it's good. It's all on blockchain. I can totally prove that, you know, insurance guys say hey, it was mine, right? Um, but even more importantly, when you connect it to, now we can do like a 3D version of your, your NFT or your artwork or whatever. So now you own the, I, I kind of like, I like to think of the tokens as like bearer bonds, right? If I own the token, I should own the actual thing. So if I have a token for that Mona Lisa, I should be able to walk in and say, hey, I'm taking it home today. We're going to do like a quick swap, you know, have a nice day, guys. And okay, well, you've got the token, so it's all yours. But when you when you do like the 3D part, now, you know, I've got a thing I can hang on the wall and show everybody in my office or, you know, like the store. Like, hey, dude, check out, I bought this cool NFT somewhere. Or if we get into this digital twin sort of idea where we're linking things back to location, I can have a whole 3D art gallery or, you know, a 3D castle or whatever linked back to my house or my office. And I can have all of my artwork in there. And I can also have them set, hey, for sale, for auction, for whatever, as well as on a global kind of market. So now I can be like, hey, Kevin, come over to my house. We're going to hang out. You're going to be in VR. I'm going to be in AR. We've got this cool crossover happening. I'm going to see your avatar in my living room. You're going to see my avatar in the 3D you know, council or whatever. And check out all this artwork I've bought. So we think about like really rich guys or museums. They've got you know, all these art pieces, antiquities. They're buried in the basement. They'll never see the light of day because they're too valuable. You know, if you're a rich guy with an art collection, you want to brag about it. You want to show your friends, you know, hey, I appreciate fine art. Look at these amazing weird pieces of art things that I got, right? Well, you can if it's in the basement. But again, when you link when you link the physical to the 3D and back and forth, it opens up all these other options for, I mean, think about, gosh, if you went to a museum and got like 3D scans of every fossil and every antiquity and whatever, right? They can send it back to the country they got it from. Hello, right? Let, let, let's repatriate some stuff. But now you can still have these amazing educational experiences on site with AR, but more importantly, for remote people. So now I could be living in Taiwan or, or this Sudan or in Alaska. I'm not gonna be able to fly to the, you know, the, the Smithsonian to, to check that out. I'm too, I'm too broke and I don't speak English. But what if I could whoop open a browser and like have my little avatar and then suddenly I'm at, you know, the Smithsonian, I'm walking around, the, their digital twin and I'm getting access to all these high-res scans of stuff in 3D and they're all annotated and they got, you know, linked audio clips and and research and, and lots of photos. And it's like suddenly it, without doing like any work at all, right? Just like the stuff that we'd normally do for our entertainment or whatever, we suddenly created a whole new way to get rid of borders and basically let people almost teleport anywhere and have access to stuff on the global market. And I think that's the metaverse to me, right? That's the earth shaking, world changing sort of thing that the web was supposed to be instead of, you know, uh, here, here's, a, here's, a, here's a meme of my cat doing dumb things, which is kind of where we're at today, right? Um, so, so anyway, so, but, but this also goes a long way towards protecting, uh, you know, the rights of artists for sure, help you understand, you know, where this thing came from. Is it really an original artwork? Is that a copy? Is it a licensable copy or whatever? Which then also leads into monetization stuff. I made this, I sold it to you, that's cool. And you're like, this is cool, Rob, but I'm kind of bored with it now. So I'm gonna sell it to somebody else. Well, it would be nice if I got a piece of that because I'm the original artist. And we're beginning to see these types of, I guess, you know, smart contracts, whatever, built into things now. And I really think it's probably going to take, you know, three or four years to really fully bake. But I think a lot of this stuff is really going to change, you know, digital rights and, and IP and everything. So, yeah, we're, we're like all over that. And I haven't even gotten to the cool real estate stuff yet. Yeah, yeah, so, this is, I mean, 
three three to four years that's no time at all oh yeah no no no. yeah it's literally happening like right now and i think that that three or four years is mostly just an adoption it's, it's almost a foregone conclusion at this point, um, which is it's kind of cool. You know, it's, a few years ago, I was like, okay, well, you know, we have, you know, super fast computers, you got these amazing video cards, you know, I can fly to the moon with the, the chip in my phone now, and it's all this amazing tech. And it's like, okay, so outside of actual teleportation and like, you know, dangerous AI robots, what innovations are left? Like we saw all the cool stuff. Remember like there's a big spike in tech for like every other month. There's some new announcement in like the 90s and the 2000s and it was like okay this kind of slows down and you know or after that and i'm thinking where's my flying car i was promised a flying car by the year 2000 right and and hover packs why don't i have that and then all of a sudden maybe in like the last two years or so you know b- between blockchain and nfts and you know, a variety of other things there's like a new resurgence of innovation and like really cool high tech that's just like breaking out like all over the place now um, and I think that, you know, for the next maybe three to five years, we're going to see a lot of just just really nifty, cool stuff coming out. Which is Well, we are seeing flying cars and hover packs now. So yeah, well, it's a bit late, though, you know, I'm like, come on, I'm You're getting right. old, man. You know, <laughs> are we going to actually be able to use them? But oh, yeah, no, so- for, for sure, because life extension drugs any day, I promise. Right. <laughs> yeah. Elon Musk wants us to, uh, you know, put ourselves in the ethosphere. Mm-hmm. But um. So, so this is really cool. So that's great. You gave us a, a, a really great background. So can you talk about now how your company is moving that into some of the efforts that you're doing? But I did want to mention this because my creative director is on the line with us, the $69 million Beeple NFT sale. Uh, my creative director, um, I introduced him to Beeple a couple of years ago. I don't oh, think cool. he... He was the biggest fan, <laughs> but I mean, wow, $69 million later. Um, yeah. So can you speak on, you know, how a lot of these now coalesce into the efforts of what your company is doing? Yeah. So, I mean, th- th- there's, there's a couple of different ways. So, you know, first and foremost, remember I mentioned like the, the, the idea of the virtual goods before it's a 3d object. It's linked to something else and, you know, it's all good. And, you know, when we were thinking about, okay, we're building this big, amazing thing. We're going to put it out there. We have to figure out how to monetize it and do all that fun stuff. And that's, that's good for us. Uh, but I think, you know, kind of the win here is when we can have other people monetize it, right? So if I can create something where it's easy for a business, a brand, a content creator, an influencer, you know, speculator, or, you know, whatever, everybody, if everybody in that stack <clears throat> could come and be like, oh my God, this is amazing stuff. I'm going to be making money on this and like I'm in, right? It's going to be really hard for some other competitor to come in and kind of beat that. And this is why, and it's like the same kind of the psychology behind why it's so hard to compete with like a Facebook, right? I mean, you can build the most amazing social platform like ever and release it and you're still not going to beat Facebook because the people there have so much time invested into their relationships, their connections, their high school buddies, their, you know, their, their kids' birth photos, you know, all that stuff. There's an emotional attachment. Anytime you invest time into something and build something, you have an emotional attachment to it. It's the same reason why like, like YouTube is so amazing, right? There's better platforms for video, but everybody goes to YouTube because it's comfortable, it's, use, it's useful. I can make money on it. You know, it's the same sort of thing. So, so in our case, it's like, okay, I got to make sure that everybody in the stack can do some fun stuff. So how do we do this? I thought, okay, so I've got brands and brands are going to want to place these objects everywhere. 
for consumers to find because you know who doesn't want to find a couple of 3d dominoes boxes and get some pizza right like, come on buy one get one free give me free pizza whatever i'll do that all day long that's way better than running around looking for you know a cute little pikachu that does nothing because it's like it's pizza so so that's cool and then it's like okay so it's not just about the brand doing it in their store it's about the brand reaching their ideal consumer where what kind of consumers do i want and where are they and that's where i'm going to place content and that's going to get them excited they're going to pick it up and then I'm going to drive that traffic or I want them to go to redeem it. So go to this store, go to this mall, go to this place over here. So now you've got a really fantastic mechanism for, for brands to do engagement that really rewards consumers for, for having fun, basically. So I thought, okay, that's pretty awesome, but it's still kind of one-sided. And then we thought, well, let's look at location again. And we've, we've got kind of two different angles here. It's a little hard to wrap your head around sometimes, but we have a concept of digital airspace, which is basically... I own this plot of land, I own the mining rights, and I can build whatever I want up to like 150 feet. That's my airspace, right? That's mine, here's the deed, go away, or you know, that's it. But there's this other concept that's beginning to emerge now called digital rights. And as of this moment, there's no such thing, right? There's no legal definition, there's no such thing. You can complain all day long about digital rights, it's meaningless, but it's beginning to emerge and at some point, somebody's going to put it out there and everybody will go, okay, that's great. We're running with it. Or there's going to be a big lawsuit. It's going to go to the Supreme court and then it could go sideways. And I'll, I'll explain that in a minute because this is kind of crazy. So I want to be able to go up to your front yard and put down a 3d pink flamingo. And you're like, Oh, hell no, that's my property. Right. And I say, well, I'm not standing on your property. And you're like, hmm, okay. So I can't get you for trespassing because you're across the street, but I don't want that pink flamingo in my front yard. And then my response would then be, well, it's not actually in your front yard. It's just associated with the GPS coordinates for your front yard. And you're going to go, okay, well, I see what you did there, Rob, and I'm really irritated about it, but you're right. There's absolutely nothing I can do except buy some, some ugly pink flamingos and put them in your yard. And I'm totally going to do that now because, you know, I'll, fair, I'll spare a little more. So that sounds fun, but it has, that doesn't do anybody any good. So we thought, okay, how do we kind of head off the bad thing of the past. Because if you think about it, let's say we go to court and the judge is like, okay, so we are going to disallow any kind of interactive media, digital media, any kind of digital content whatsoever. You have to have somebody's permission to put anything that has a bit to it in somebody's front yard. And everybody's gonna go, oh, yay, great, great for privacy rights, this is so exciting. And then everybody's gonna walk out of court, patting themselves in the back, and then they're gonna realize what a disaster they just did. Because what I just said, includes TV, it includes radio, it includes cellular signals, it includes satellite signals, it includes Google Maps, right? It's picture, it's linked to your location, same sort of thing. So suddenly, everybody's suing everybody else to get a percentage of every wavelength and electronic bit that goes through their front yard. This is a problem. This is why this can't go to court. So it's up to guys like me to kind of sort, sit down and figure out, okay, well, well crap, we gotta, how do we do this the right way? So our approach is, okay, we're gonna go to everybody um, and say, if you own a piece of property, you know, or, or a mall or a store or a house, you just come to us, just sign up like a Yelp thing, right? This is my house. I prove it's mine. And we say, great, here it is. It's yours for free. You're good to go. And if you don't want any AR, VR content associated with it, you know, hit the checkbox and then we will add you to the no AR list. And then we're going to go out to everybody else in the industry and say, hey, we've got a growing no AR list. We've already done the work. You know, why don't you guys like adopt it too? So we can protect everybody that has locations where, you know, it's a Holocaust museum, it's elementary school. I mean, you don't want content here and it doesn't make sense to have, you know, whatever rolling around. But at the same time, we're also gonna be selling virtual real estate locations, just like a lot of other guys do. 
Do you want to buy, you know, the corner of the mall, your favorite, you know, sports stadium? Fine, come on in. It's a few dollars per, you know, little hexagon and it's yours. And in exchange for that, because you're buying it, when a brand comes in or somebody pays to place content somewhere, we're going to do a revenue share with whoever was smart enough to buy that particular location. So if you're really smart, you're going to think, okay, where are brands going to be placing content at? And I'm going to grab those locations now. And then I'm going to create content here myself to drive more activity, which means that becomes an even bigger spot for a brand to pay to place content. Okay. And that's going to be amazing for speculators and content creators because it's, it's like persistent income. But then the guy that owns the property is going to be like, wait a minute, hold the phone. I'm the guy that bought, I own this place, right? I signed up for your thing and then my question is okay well did you click the no ar checkbox i'm like no it's okay as long as you don't check that we're going to do all this other stuff and because we're such nice guys if you're willing to give us you know exclusive rights to monetize your digital airspace which is something that we're giving you we're giving you the rights on our platform you give us the rights exclusively to monetize i'm going to give you a big piece of that revenue share so you don't have to do any work at all so it's a win-win it's a win-win for everybody, it, but it's a very big win for me because the more people I have saying, Robert, I want a piece of this pie and I see what all these people are doing and creating out there, absolutely take a, a, you know exclusive rights to monetize my digital airspace and here's the address to start sending checks. Now, if you're a competitor and you show up, you can't beat free and you can't beat free that's paying you, right? And the more locations, more malls, more universities, more stadiums, the more you know, universities, whatever that we have adopting in. Because again, I'm giving it to you for free. And we're going to monetize it, and you know, and then if you don't like it, you can always flip the switch and turn it off for for protection, right? Now suddenly we're the big guy on the block. We've got all the locations, and all those people that we're sending checks to have given us exclusive metaverse monetization rights to their location. So we de facto set the stage for what do digital airspace rights look like how do they operate and what the benefit is to the actual owner while still maintaining the ability to monetize it on our platform the speculators and the content creators and so on and so forth does that kind of make sense a little bit yeah it's, it's yeah. a little complicated it's a little complicated but it's like okay well so this is this this works for everybody and 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 again the more we do it the better of a position it puts us because you know honestly anybody could, could get some coders together make their own metaverse and sell their own you know, virtual real estate. There's at least a half dozen companies doing that now, but they're all, hey, buy our coin, buy our coin and buy the Eiffel Tower for $2,000. And you can put a 3D ad banner on it. I'm like, okay, that's the most useless thing ever. <laughs> what I'm building is monetized for everybody. And I've got this whole AR VR blend. You're literally going to be able to log in and drop your, you know, your 3D avatar in some other city and walk, walk around remotely sitting at your desk in your underwear while some of the guys on the street is going to pull up his phone, he's going to see like this, this ghostly avatar walking down the street for him. He's going to go, oh, who's that? He's going to click on it. And hey, you guys are talking like over, over VOIP, like on the spot. I mean, that's, that's mind blowing in terms of the 50,000 applications that simple communication is going to do. So, yeah. yeah. Well, you laid down the groundwork for it. I mean, you know, just imagine being able to, you know, walk into the Smithsonian or the Louvre. I've been watching uh, Lupin. Right. And yeah. one of my favorite shows, you know, been to the Louvre, you know, and you can only you need to spend days really to to yeah. go through the yeah. whole place. Well, so, I mean, th 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 think about this. Say, say you wanted to learn French while you were there. Right. 
you take a French class, you know, you, you take a, the Rosetta Stone or you pay some some French guy to come over to your house every day for like an hour, 40 bucks. Okay, that's cool. But, you know, the best way to learn a language is, is immersion by actually being somewhere. And, you know, for, for me, like, again, maybe uh, uh, I, I use an example. I'm, okay, I'm single mom, Philippines, three kids, right? I, I want to learn, I want to learn uh, English, okay? So maybe I want to learn English with a Boston accent, okay? So I'm going to log into like Boston and walk around and interact with people. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pick up things. I'm going to learn some stuff. I'm going to have actual English speakers to interact with and talk to. I'm going to make some connections, make some friends, and that can open up other opportunities. So now imagine you've got a mall in Boston that we've done a digital twin out of, right? So that's kind of fun. But now when you think about all the other things we just talked about, they're not restricted to, you know, closing at nine or 10 o'clock at night anymore. They can go 24 hours, be open to the world, right? And then that single mom that's picking up, you know, English in a Bostonian accent, she's going to get a job working at Macy's at three o'clock in the morning, our time, selling, you know, a pair of shoes to some guy in Russia who happens to like that particular mall was wandering around randomly. And now it's like, oh my God, what did I just do for retail? I just gave them access to the whole planet. And then I just enabled the single mom, you know, with, with three kids in the middle of the Philippines who can't make money or is making pennies sewing or whatever. She's learning English. She's learning business skills. She's making connections and friends. And she's like making bank, you know, <laughs> selling stuff at Macy's in the virtual world in the middle of the night. And like that, again, this is where, when you start thinking about the implications of, of what we're building and why we're building it, we're very specific about which features and stuff that we're doing now to kind of get this maximum impact. But man, talk about the biggest equalizer ever and, and like a thing that's empowering and just would just, yeah, I, I don't know, I'm, I get excited about my own stuff, right? Yeah, so. I mean, it's, it's breaking down boundaries, but giving a multi-layer multi-textual rich experience yes. so yeah that's that's that that's something that's pretty incredible and then as you said three to four years adoption and you know what i tell a lot of people because i talk quite a bit about autonomous cars and a lot of people have pushback like i'm not going to get in one of those because i talk about you know the iphone so you know there was a time before smartphones and people said oh you know, I'm not going to use this touchscreen thing. And then next thing you know, yeah, well, you know I no mean, one can live without reason, it. There were, there were some people that were driving the lakes early on, you know, I mean, <laughs> that was right. the thing for a while, you know, the GPS was off. But yeah, I mean, I got, I remember, you know, wanting to go on a road trip on the weekend, having to go to the gas station and buy that big, you know, thick map book <laughs> and sit there for an hour and like, you know, plot out my course. And then you get halfway there and like, yeah, we upgraded the streets about, you know, two years ago and that map's old. You can't get there from here. It's like, oh, if I hear banjos, I'm like, I'm gone. Right. That's it's game over. Yeah. But but yeah, you know, I, I mean, the whole self-driving car thing, you know, we're in that early stage. It's technically possible. Right. And you see them out there. It's not 100% safe yet. But there's 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 this, you know, there's crazy advancements going on in the AI side. And by AI, I, I don't mean like, you know, um, you know, Skynet. I just mean like regular artificial intelligence right. and stuff. So you take some of that AI and then you blend in some machine learning stuff that make the AI learn better and all that sort of jazz. And then you layer in like all the wicked cool advancements in computer vision. You know, if you if you roll the clock back, I don't know what, I don't know, eight, nine, ten, however long it's been, right? You know, let's roll it back to like early days of the iPhone. Um, you know, computer vision back then was really, really hard to do. You had to have like multiple guys with PhDs and the math is just insane. I mean, today it's like high school student, you know, Victoria <laughs> and Unity. Give me like four hour tutorial on Udemy and 
check out this amazeballs computer vision thing I just did that's going to change your face, right? That to me is still mind blowing. But even then, just a few years ago, you know, one of the things I did early on, and I licensed some, some cool tech from the University of Oxford, it's called PTAM, Parallel Tracking and Mapping, right? And it did, you know, vision analysis of like a video feed. It was a little slow, but it like it worked and it was awesome. And we thought, wow, this would be baller on like an iPhone, because then I could do all this fun sort of AR stuff. And again, this is when the iPhone was still, you know, sort of new. And at the time, um, Apple wouldn't let any developers have access to the camera. That was like a no-no. You could do other things, but don't you dare even look at that camera. We're hiding all the features, which was really disappointing for me because now I got to some like killer computer vision tech and I can't access the dumb video feed. Um, and we, we actually cheated, by the way. So we just took screenshots as fast as we possibly could with our app. And, <laughs> right. you know, it was like, you know, three frames a second, right? Because what is video? It's just a refreshing sort of whatever. So we just, we just cheated a bit. It was slow, but it worked. It was like amazing. But when you look at where things are now, uh, like all the deep fake you know, stuff going on and all that, computer vision is just going through the roof. And then on top of all of that, you've got a lot of other things going on that use all of these different technologies that you just mentioned for photogrammetry and like 3D production and stuff. So you're going to start seeing, you know, you, even with like the iPhone 12, you can do a pretty cool 3D model of something really fast, right? But this is also happening at the city scale. And then that sort of stuff with the other things is what's going to make those self-driving cars safer and better. So the more they understand their environment, the better it is. And it's not just going to be like an active radar thing. They're going to know in advance. Here's where yeah. the trees are. Here's where this is and this is, which means they can then focus the rest of the resources on moving objects. So, yeah, it's coming yeah. very quickly. Yeah. And, I, you know, I was relating that more to the metaverse and what's going on with what you're adopting, which that three to four years just does not seem like that much time at all. I mean, that's like a, a short amount of time. Yeah. I, well, I mean, that, that's, that's when I said three to four years earlier, I meant this an adoption curve after something's been built, right? And when you, when you think about what I'm building now, I actually saw an article the other day from some newspaper somewhere where they got a bunch of you know, guys in the room to be futurists and talking about, okay, what's coming in the future? It's gonna be fun. And they predicted that a lot of this metaverse stuff is 20 to 40 years out. Okay, sure. If we're talking about, you know, jacking into my brain, right? I thought <laughs> these guys are like, these guys are really going to like, you know, pee their pants from January because I would say probably 85 to 95% of everything I've already mentioned, we're going to be rolling out within 12 months. Yeah. I mean, you already have the so. mechanization, the, the, the oh, yeah. engine for yeah. it. So, yeah. 100%. Um, so there's two more things i know we've been going for quite a while but uh you know like i said i was excited super excited to uh to get this interview um so where does hardware like hololens um the apple glasses are coming out and you know google glass had kind of like a false start i mean people were kind of you know <laughs> up in arms about yeah. that and, and 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 cell phones so where does all of this fit into this you know brave new world mm -hmm. Um, so, so if I came to you today and said, Hey, Kevin, I've got like a PlayStation 23, you'd be like, holy crap, how did you get that? And, and I would say, well, you know, time travel, but you know, I've got a PlayStation 23. You want it? You're like, yes, give it to me. You didn't get home. And you're like, oh my God, this is so cool. This is like generations ahead of what everybody else has. You plug it in and there's nothing there. There's no content. There's no whatever. I think that's where we're at as an industry, right? 
So maybe you buy a HoloLens for a billion and a half dollars, or you know, maybe Apple comes out tomorrow with the coolest, most you know, crazy Oakley. You know, this does all the things with real-time smell. You know, or or you've got contact lenses that can see into the future. I mean, whatever. It's some, somebody's going to drop an amazing bit of hardware at some point. Real time. And there's smell. not going to be. I've... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's been done before, but that's another story. But yeah, but it's like it's like okay, well, I got the cool hardware. Now what? And people have to build to it, build the suit to it. And I think that's that's a problem in the industry. So we thought, okay, well, screw that. Plus, I also don't want to be confined to just an Apple or just a HoloLens or whatever. So our particular approach is let's build all the amazing stuff now. We can always make it better and cooler you know, as we go. But let's build it now and let's target like the mobile phone. There's something like 1.8 billion mobile phones right now today that can handle AR content at some level. So let's, let's do that. And then let's let those people build and create and share and monetize and whatever. And then when the wicked cool glasses come out, hey guys, guess what? There's even better experience than the stuff that you're already familiar with. It's gonna be crazy, right? And I think that's the smart approach because you get your market, you give them what they want right now. And then you're way ahead of everybody else. It's like, oh, we're waiting for Apple glasses to come out before we start building our cool game or platform because we don't have the API yet, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, guys, you're going to be so far behind, it's going to be very sad. So, the access, and again, you know, thinking back to all the other stuff I said earlier, accessibility for everybody, I, I think, is, is it's a big thing. And while not everybody has an iPhone 12, okay, I can't do much about that, but we're, you know, we're targeting like, you know, the eighth generation or whatever, it's still way more people than have a micro, you know, HoloLens or, or Magic Leap or, you know, Apple Glasses. Yeah. And when those came out, come out, you're still going to see the three, five, seven year sort of range before it gets down to the regular blue collar worker guy. You know, that, the world's changed when your four year old's got one, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, people are now, you know, well versed into what the mobile, the mobile universe is. So, um, so we're going to get to the point that I talked about when I start the conversation, which is a little bit about you. I, I know um, that you own the comic book store, which is really cool. My company, we produce comic books. Oh, cool. But we have a multi-platform project that survives in that form, animation. We have um, an animated film that has Daryl Hannah, Michael oh, that's awesome. and Tommy Flanagan and a bunch of, bunch of folks. Um, and an app, we also have a VR version that debuted at the Miami Film Festival. And we have an AR component and we're also working on a game. So we have kind of like a, a metaverse within one project. Yeah, that's um, awesome. Yeah, we're, we're, we're excited about it. And uh, maybe I could talk to you a little bit about it offline. Yeah, but sure. that's another point of excitement when I found out that you owned a comic book store. I mean, <laughs> isn't that super cool? Yeah, so, I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd, man. <laughs> so um where were you born how did you evolve into owning a comic book store and then how did you evolve into where you're at right now yeah yeah so it's a funny story <laughs> i was born in Passaic, new jersey which like nobody knows so i'm i guess i'm from new jersey um but shortly after i was born uh so i, I like i said i'm an army brat um we moved and i've never been back so i have no sense of what it's like to live in new jersey and I don't feel like I'm from New Jersey, but that's where I was born. Just, and like, where the hell is Passaic at? I, I can't even spell. Um, yeah. yeah, I moved so, around a lot when I was a kid. Okay. People ask me where I'm from and 
you know, it, when it, you it, have experience from other places. It, it's usually where you're at right now or the place that you enjoyed the most is where you're from, right? Right. It's kind of nice that way. Uh, but yeah, seeing so, you know, a military brat, we did a, a, like four tours over in Germany. So I grew up over, over in Germany. I went to high school and like three, you know, three high schools in all over Europe. And yeah, I, amazing memories. The Berlin Wall was still up at the time. So I get the whole, the Russians are coming and, you know, all the communism is bad. I mean, I lived the, the Cold War as like, you know, a teenager sort of thing. I'm not, I'm not as old as I sound, I promise. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago. Um, but anyway, so moved around a whole lot. Uh, came back to the states right when I was you know, graduating high school. Um, my mother was uh, diagnosed with a with a, with a terminal disease, and they gave her like six months. So it was like an emergency reassignment. She ended up lasting like another nine years. This long, slow, you know, kind of real steady decline. Um, but yeah, so graduated high school, uh, and then uh, I went to college, went to Valley Forge Christian College. And at the time, I was thinking, you know what, I'm going to go dual major, theology and music. I, I play saxophone, right? So college jazz band you know get some music going on you know you know, blend some stuff there and uh i i lucked into a job as, as campus security which sounds like a horrifying job but it was a lot of fun and i got the like third shift so i could study you know i had the keys to everything and it was like a cool campus so that was all fun and then at the end of the first year you know we, were, we weren't like wealthy by any means when you grow up you enlisted in the army back in those days nobody was making any money so um, I couldn't afford to go back for a second year. So I thought, okay, you know, I'm just going to work for a year and then I'll go back. And I, again, I got really lucky and ended up getting a job for the Army and Air Force Exchange Service, which is the, they run the, the post exchange and the theater and the gas station. It's like, it's like, it's like the Walmart for Army, I guess is the way to, way to describe it. So I got a job working for them uh, as an exchange detective. I had a cool little DOD, like little badge, like I'm, an, I'm a detective, you know, and like I, I barely grow, grow a mustache. I'm running around, you know, you know, you, you can't shoplift here, sir. You have to come with me. And, uh, you know, in the first couple months I was doing that, I was, I was getting like all these like super high profile, like, like things that were going on. You know, I got like a retired general guy who was stealing some film. There was, uh, there was, there was an international incident of somebody stealing something that shouldn't have been that, um, was related to another country that was somewhat related to the desert shield stuff going on at the time. And suddenly people were coming in like, 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 I don't want to say erasing files, but I would say smoothing things over and making it all go away very quickly, like like super fast. And within that first year, I was like a, you know, an, an expert witness uh, from like a couple of uh, federal magistrate, like court marshals. Yeah, no, I'm not even kidding. I was like, I, I'm really good at what I do. And like, I was in the middle of it and like, okay, this is cool. Um, so I did that for about a year, year and a half. And then uh, my dad had got reassigned to Fort Jackson. So I just followed him down and did the same thing in Fort Jackson for, for a couple months. And then he's like, okay, I'm kind of done with the military. I'm going to retire. So he goes to Louisville, Kentucky. Middle of nowhere, are you an know, armpit or whatever. I lived in Louisville, so. Oh, Louisville was great back in the day. I, it's not so hot now, but. Louisville. Yeah, Louisville. Louisville. Yeah, that's right. Louisville, <laughs> Kentucky. J-Town. Uh, uh, yeah, like, you, know, you, you know, all the good stuff. First burn yeah. yeah, so. Um, so I went back to Maryland because I had a really good friend up there and I'm still doing the detective thing. I thought, you know what? I, I'm like, I'm working my butt off. I'm having fun. But I'm not making any money. I still can't go back to college. And I'm looking at my friend and he's got like this massive, massive comic book collection. Just like every payday, he was like buying four copies of everything. And that's just what he did. And I was like, hey, man, you know, we could probably start a store and sell some of this stuff. <laughs> and he was like, that's just like a great idea. Let's all quit our jobs. And moved to Kentucky and, you know, do a comic book store. So I thought, oh, okay, let's do it. Um, so we did. It was called Dr. Comics. 
a D for Derek and R for Robert. And we had a whole like, you know, the, this like a doctor, you know, in scrubs sort of vibe going on. And we did, you know, comics and, and anime and role-playing games and collectibles. It was, we did all the stuff and everything was great until they killed Superman. I was like, oh, <laughs> come on, man. Like, really? So, you know, so Superman's like killed. And then my business was like, la, la, la. And suddenly I'm worried about the electricity. And oh, wow. what are we going to do when I got a lease? And like, you know, I'm, I'm so screwed. And so, you know, we're sitting there. We figure we've got maybe like a month left before it's just game over. And this random dude like walks in. He's like, you know, hi, I'm so-and-so. I've got a cool virtual reality machine. Can I put it in your store so I can test it? And I'm thinking to myself, why is this guy asking, asking permission? This is a comic book store. He should know that there's a law that if you have cool technology, you're allowed to bring it right in without asking, right? Bring it in. Uh, so he did. And it was like, it was really super rudimentary, but it was still cool. And people were coming in paying like, you know, two or three bucks for like a minute. And then you know, they'd go outside and puke, right? <laughs> because it was, it was like these 320 by 200 LCDs jammed up against your eyeballs. And like the tracking, you know, you move your head and then like a second <laughs> later, the rest of the thing would follow. It was <laughs> horrifying. And um, they were still trying to you know, keep the store alive. And he comes to me one day, he's like, hey, Robert, does you want a job? And I'm like, um, sure, doing what? And he says, you know how to use a computer, right? And I'm going, oh, of course, dude. You know, because every day, you know, in between hours, I'd go back in the stock room on my Tandy TL2, you know, 16 color, you know, whatever computer and uh, whip out the, the modem and, you know, dial into like CompuServe and Genie. And I was trying to pick up girls in chat rooms because, you know, that's that's what you did back then. <laughs> right. And because uh, so I knew how to use a computer. I knew how to use a mouse. I knew how to type. And that qualified me to be a senior multimedia <laughs> engineer, <laughs> which is what I did. So he's like, cool, you're my first employee. Um, you know, here's a pre-release version of 3D Studio, and here's a copy of Deluxe Paint. Sorry, I don't have the manuals. Can you figure it out? I'm like, oh, yeah, I can figure it out because, you know, I'm stupid. Um, but I did. I, you know, I trained myself to, you know, 3D modeling and animation and all that sort of jazz. Yeah, and, that's the program that my creative director learned on 3D Studio Max. Oh, so. oh yeah. Well, I mean, and and uses to this day. It's still still a thing to this day. And, uh, yes, yeah, so I figured it out. I hired and trained the art staff. And then, you know, one day he comes to me. He's like, hey, Robert. <laughs> You play saxophone, right? I was like, yeah. He says, great. You're promoted. You're a new sound engineer. Here's the synthesizer, the digital tape recorder, a sampler, and a copy of Wave for Windows. Sorry, I don't have the manuals. I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> so I had to teach myself, like, legit how to do sound effects and sound engineering that we're plugging into VR games. And, like, you know, there's no YouTube. There's no books on this at the library. It was just all trial and error or hunting people down on bulletin boards. Like, hey, you know how to do this stuff? <laughs> And in the middle of all this, the guy I was working for somehow managed to license um, uh, Wolfenstein 3D from from id. And we were suddenly building multiplayer Wolfenstein VR. And so I was the guy, part of my job was to go in and, and edit all the little pixels to get rid of the swastikas and make the blood look yellow. But I, at this point, I was still early with like Lux Paint. And I had no idea how to do a selection set or a gradient. I don't know. I'm fumbling my way through this. So if you knew how many hours I've spent literally changing pixel by pixel by pixel by pixel, <laughs> you would laugh at me for like a very long time. Like, I, I'm not even joking. Um, so anyway, long story short, just exciting there. It blew up. Uh, you know, some issues with the two owners. And then I did mall security for a while, trying to figure out what I was going to do. It's a volunteer DJ at a radio station for a couple months. And I'm like, you know, I'm just, I'm not even treading water. It's just getting worse. I thought, okay, I got to get out of here. I, I get this tech. I could do this. 
So I moved here to Raleigh, North Carolina, and I started my first software company. And we were going to be the guys to make the world's first real-time 3D massively multi-user online role-playing game before anybody else did. And real-time 3D, you know, like other games that looked 3D, like 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 uh, you know, Wolfenstein, for example, it's not actually 3D 3D. It's a lot of perspective, you know, bitmaps in a 3D space. And we were like, no, 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 we're going to do like 3D 3D. So I got some guys together. We got a little bit of funding and companies like Microsoft and Activision and Interplay were like flying into Raleigh going, whoa, 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 what, what's going on over here? What's this business? And uh, you know, we were going out and our demo, dude, we had a demo on a VHS tape because <laughs> we couldn't carry these huge, you know, gateway computer towers that weighed like a thousand pounds, right? Right. So we had like this 12 polygon dude that was barely recognizable as a humanoid form on like this little floating platform, but it was in real time running the software. And like we blew people's minds and then they were like, okay, this is cool, Robert, but people will, will never play uh, games on the internet. And this idea of making the pay for stuff is never going to happen. So, you know, have a nice day. See you. And I'm like, oh, come on. And so this, this is like 1995, 1996, right? I'm way, I'm so early to this. It's not even funny. And then, then you know, we ran out of money and, you know, that, all that kind of blew up. And then I was like, I was like homeless for a couple months. It was kind of living underneath the desk I had no money i was driving this, this old 79 oldsmobile station wagon that i got for like 200 bucks for some guy and it was just you know life was crap um but you know, i don't give up i've got a vision i know what i want to build and i mean i'm going to find a way to make one even if i got to do other things along the way right if, you, if you've got if you've got that thing in your heart that you want to do it doesn't matter what anybody else says you've got the potential to get there but it may not be easy and you may need other people to buy into what you want to do and get there. But yeah, so persistence and vision is important, but, um, but yeah, I ended up getting a job at another game company for a friend of mine, got to sleep, you know, on a cot in his house for a couple months until I got on my feet. And then I did that for a while. And then I started doing some consulting for some other companies and then ultimately ended up, um, you know, advising and consulting other virtual worlds. I did some stuff with like anarchy online. I consulted with the Eve online guys to help, help them here's what to expect in a launch and i built like their whole volunteer you know support system for like volunteer guys to come in and do stuff and i was uh like the head of um you know like customer service stuff for shadow bay in asia and then you know then later on so i talked my way into licensing an mmo from a malaysian company you know i flew over there i signed the documents and, like i am now the proud owner of an mmo for north america and europe i get back here to the states i borrowed money for the plane ticket and then I'm like, okay, great. Oh my God, I'm screwed because now I got to find servers and blah, blah, blah. But I got the deal, right? It took a while to get. So then I had to go out and do all that stuff and everything was fine. And then guess what? World of Warcraft launches. I was like, <laughs> you guys killed Superman twice on me. So my business tanks. Oh, like, oh. It's wow. like, you're, you're killing me, right? Um, I'm, this is a really long story to get, get, get to my point. And there, there, there's, there's a lot more. So, uh, you know, my mother ultimately she passed away. Um, there were some, some issues with my, my father later on the year, he actually did a, um, a, a brief, uh, a brief prison, uh, sort of thing. So oh. my sister's been through really bad situations and some, you know, some of her stuff. So it's like, you know, half the time I'm out trying to do amazing startup-y stuff, right. And I'm on stage and people are like, oh my God, Robert, you're so cool. I'm like, I know I'm super sexy. Um, but at the same time, you know, you like, you never really know what somebody's experiencing personally. Right matter how yeah. much you're smiling or how, how good things go and you know there were many 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 years where you know i'm, I'm like literally at the bottom of the barrel going you know, I'm like, why is my family like targeted like constantly by 
by tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. And like any one of these little, little events is, is heartbreaking and life-changing. You know, when you lose a parent or a terminal disease or, you know, another parent does something that they should not have done, then that affects other people. And then that steamrolls and then, you know, other things like, like I'm a junior. So, you know, whatever my dad does ultimately reflects on me because we have to yeah. And then, you know, he had a mental breakdown after that. And it was like, I had to deal with, you know, forgiving my father while like, you know, not dealing with it, but also trying to, as a human being, you know, because he got to the point where he was completely like rejected and ostracized by like literally the whole planet, right? Oh, wow. And I, was, I was like his lifeline to, to sanity and not, you know, killing, killing himself or whatever. So it was like, I really had to, to compartmentalize some things and try to be there for him as a son, but also be distant does that make sense yeah yeah Um, absolutely because you have to protect yourself yeah yeah exactly it's a really hard personal thing to to talk about but the the point i want to make there is that you know when you're on a journey to do something especially something big and and fun and exciting you also have to prepare yourself to deal with failure along the way you know abraham lincoln's a great example yeah now that guy had like like literally 500 failures (laughs) and they were like like crazy failures yeah, yeah, and then it was like, hey, by the way, you're a new president. It's going to be cool. Right. And, and life is like that. So many, and I'm sure you've heard the phrase, every overnight success takes 10 years, right? Yeah. That's like a legit true story. You don't know the blood, the sweat, the tears that, that somebody has gone through or, you know, that I've gone through. And then on top of that, what about the other people? What about, you know, my wife or my coworkers yeah. or their families or their spouses? So as much as, you know, oh, you know, poor Robert's been through some, some horrible crap and he's managed to survive. Other people have also, you know, been impacted by those things and they've had their own struggles. I mean, I had to lay off a company once on like, like the, the, like the week before Thanksgiving and half of those guys had like kids and stuff and were like, well, thanks for that, Robert. You know, <laughs> Thanksgiving's next. What are yeah, we going to do? Like it was your fault. Yeah, like right. it was my fault. I'm like, hey, <laughs> right. what am I going to do? Um, so, but, but, but the, the light at the end of the tunnel though is it's all temporary right mm-hmm. as long as you get back up and, and keep plugging forward and find other people like, don't do it by yourself find a partner find people that believe in your vision and uh, and stick to it and then one day you'll you'll find success or you know you may find something completely different but that journey gets you there and yeah you have to go through that refining process yeah so before we get to the point where you know your company what you professionally you know really start to take off i just seems you know, feel something interesting in this because you're talking about this shared experience and it's an experience that is connected. So once one thing happens with one person, it's a domino effect going many different ways. Mm-hmm. And that's similar to the, the metaverse, which yeah. is a, a shared and connected experience and will be a shared and connected experience with people around the world. So, you know, that's something that you had all that going on and then you move towards something that then is a big connector. A lot of people don't realize we're all connected in one way or the other, you know, the butterfly effect. Um, and especially now in these times where things are, you know, very siloed, but breaking down boundaries and breaking down walls gives us understanding about each other. So, Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, for sure. And here's a good example. So, so, you know, we're, we're doing this stuff, you know, with the Bitcoin association and like all amazing people over there and that's opened up some crazy opportunities and you know one of them uh you know barely what barely a couple months ago i had the opportunity to be part of a contingent of, of other companies that we went to sudan you know khartoum 
um, and, you know, meet with half the government down there and talk about digital transformation and blockchain and, you know, smart cities and like all this amazing stuff. And, you know, Sudan is heavily, you know, oppressed and repressed country. They just got out of a horrible dictatorship, you know, 30 years of being shunned by the rest of the planet. They're so far behind in everything. And they're, they're horrifyingly poor. I mean, it's just, it was just, it's very, very bad over there. Um, but even in the midst of all that, you know, we're at, the, we're at this hotel, we're doing this thing, we got a room full of whatever. And there were a couple of uh, students from the University of Khartoum that were in there. Uh, you know, and they came up to me afterwards, like, oh, you know, I broke in English and I, hi, Robert. And uh, I'd actually made a joke earlier about being from the future. And they, they came up like, hello, Mr. Future Man, you know, da, 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 da. And I thought, <laughs> okay, I'll take it. You know, that, that's kind of cool. Um, and the two of them were working on their PhDs in cryptography and they wanted to know if I could give them some suggestions for some projects to work on and i'm like okay so i can come up with a wait did you say phd in cryptography do i have like a complete wrong uh, understanding of what's <laughs> going on in sudan i mean yeah it's a university but why do i have a mental block for for like poor countries right and i like i had to go home and think about that for a bit and i thought wow mm. there's there's actually there's young people there they're, they're smart they're learning yeah um, but they're still abstracted out and distanced away from like the rest of the world's community and yeah maybe they can get on linkedin and do some other sort of stuff but you know putting hi i live in sudan on your resume is not going to get you a job you know in in louisville kentucky overnight right it's just there's so many barriers and distance but i thought okay wow you know again with the things that we're building and all that if we can remove those barriers man you know how easy it would be to teach a bunch of students in the university of khartoum how to use unity they've got computers right hey guys Build a digital city for Khartoum, connect it to the network, and now you're going to be on a, at a peer level with everybody else in their cities. And let's That's make great. a new let's make a new digital nation, right? I like that term, new digital nation where anybody anywhere can be part of this and contribute and can get in at like this early level. And all you guys are going to be pioneers now because this is this is all fertile, untouched ground. Yeah, Second Life's been around for a long time, but we're doing something different. Anybody getting in in this in the next two, three, four, five years is going to be an early industry pioneer. And you put that on your resume. Why, yes, I built part of Digital Khartoum and we integrated all this commerce. And then we taught, you know, our, our culture and our language to other students, other places. And then we did this other thing over here. I mean, there's just so many, so many options. But that that connectivity, it's like almost like a quantum sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, the phrase the rising tide floats all boats. Yeah. Right? Well, that's cool if everybody has a boat. And right now, everybody doesn't have a boat. Yeah, that's actually I'm going to start adding that to my story when I tell people. Uh, <laughs> I want to help build boats for other people. That's what we're doing. I Let love that. Basically, boats for everybody. And that's a really good line. It's boats for everybody. Um, but if I can build something that makes it insanely simple for one of those young girl, you know, PhD cryptography students in Khartoum to suddenly have better, cooler, and more interesting access to the rest of the world. Plus, I mean, when you think about AR and VR, it's not just avatars and fun things. You know, there's a whole other, there's the computer vision, there's data visualization, there's data simulation. I mean, there's a whole lot of areas, you know, medical and medical, yeah, and yeah. education and, you know, power and gas where metaverse is going to be getting its little tendrils into. So, yeah. yeah, it's just, this is just why I'm so, so amazed and enthralled by this. This is like the next general, you know, internet, then web, you know, what's coming next. It's going to be metaverse. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's virtual reality. I think it's metaverse. Right. And then I think, you know, it's, there's not many people that have the perspective that we do. So I think it's going to be interesting. Yeah. You know, I was, I was having a conversation with um, Rodrigo 
Arboleda, who started one laptop per child, which mm -hmm. was an incredible initiative. Yeah. And he was telling me how in Rwanda, I don't know if you saw the movie Hotel Rwanda. Um, I lived in South Africa in 97. And so a lot of the expats, you know, went to South Africa from that whole situation. Really bad situation, genocide. But, yeah. he, you know, he, he, he told me that he met with the president that came in afterwards and that he asked him what is going to help the nation rebuild. And so Rodrigo um, told him, well, let's look at how to make the country more connected with the technology. So now Rwanda is one of the most connected cities, if not the most connected city in Africa wow. because fiber optics, and they really did do a, a strong push for technology. So that's incredible that you guys are, are doing that type of outreach. Um, and- well, I mean, huh? No, I was just, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I think that's important. Yeah, 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 it, it's super important. And, you know, this whole connectivity of the world is, is, is very important. So I just have, you know, kind of two, two final things. So you went through all of that personal struggle and turmoil, started your company. We missed just a little bit there, you starting the company and then oh. how the company kind of. Yeah, I, I, I got sidetracked. I've been through so much crazy stuff. Um, yeah, so. So I, I got to the point where I find But it wasn't a sidetrack. I'm sorry. It wasn't a sidetrack because it really gives understanding about how you got to where you, you know, moved forward with the company. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I haven't, haven't hit some of the other horrifying stuff too that I've been through, but that, that's okay. So anyway, so, so in around 2014, I thought, okay, you know, I've been in and out of AR and VR and virtual worlds and MMOs. I get the tech in a way that, you know, other people do, but it's not like everybody does different perspective when you've been in those areas like you know, operating or being part of a startup or whatever um, that you just kind of have. So I thought, okay, I know what I want to build. Um, how, how do I go about it? And then I thought, okay, the first thing I'm going to do is sit down and think about where all this tech is going. What are things going to look like in 10 or 15 years? What are the coolest experiences I've ever seen on TV, in a movie, in a book, or in anime, right? And let, me, let me figure out what those are because that's what I want. I want to build the cool stuff. And then once I got kind of a good scope and picture of that, I started deconstructing it. I'm like, okay, what would it take to build a hologram that does this? What would it take to build a commerce piece for that? And that suddenly gave me like this really cool, like a roadmap. I'm here, I need this technology, and then I can do this. And it requires the other pieces. And then when I had that laid out, I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. Some of these are very fundamental to pretty much doing anything, right? I have to have an avatar to do anything in VR. Okay, so avatar, that's a fundamental thing. So as I was looking at this, I realized that some of these things are potential intellectual property choke points that haven't occurred to other people yet. I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> now I'm on to something. So this is my path, and I'm gonna to try to develop IP in these places before anybody else does while I'm kind of building the layers here. So from 2014 to 2018, you know, I did some contract work, I did some cybersecurity stuff, you know, break into banks and get paid for it and tell them where their security holes are. Completely unrelated to everything else I've done, but it was a good experience. So I'm doing stuff like that while I'm going home and every other waking moment, I'm trying to model out how to connect all the dots, put all these pieces together and build this, this kind of this full stack AR, VR metaverse. And then in early 2018, you know, I filed our first provisional patent. It was like 50 pages. 
I put everything I could possibly think of and just crammed into that document. And I'm like, okay, one of these things is gonna kind of hit if I'm lucky. Um, and then that, once I had that filed, then I said, okay, I gotta start. I gotta find some investors and I'm gonna find some people. And you know, I'm in East Coast, Southeast. I'm not like a Stanford grad. And suddenly it's like, man, it is really hard raising money again. You know, it's just horrible. So, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. We kind of took our time because I wanted to get something built first before really talking to the bigger investors. Show always beats tell. And I can talk somebody's ear off about where things are going to be at in five or 10 or 20 years. That doesn't always get checks written, right? They don't know, what have you already done? How did you pass the market? So as I'm doing all that, I'm trying to find some people. And, you know, I had a couple of like interns in and out, a couple of potential partners. They didn't quite work out. And then I came across this a Udemy course, you know, this guy's teaching a simple how to make an ARF in Unity. I thought, oh, this guy's pretty cool. I watched the course, like, oh, that's, I can do this. You know, I'm not, I'm not a coder. I'm a technologist, I'm not a coder. But I coded it. I'm like, okay, this is fun. Um, so I shot him a message and he's like, oh, I don't understand what you're talking about. You're crazy. There's too much stuff here. It can't be done, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, dude, just like, you know, let me talk to you for like an hour or half hour. Let's just talk. So, you know, we talked a couple of times and the more, I had a chance to kind of like lay it out for him. He started understanding where I'm going with all this. And then like the light bulb went off. And, and now he's like my co-founder, Satwan. He's an amazing dude. He's an like absolute rock star. This guy, you know, what I can do with, with talking somebody's ear off for eight hours, he can do with like code, just compress it really fast and then it works. And then I worry that he's just going to keel over one day. But he's, <laughs> he's an absolute rock star. And I, I would not be here if it wasn't for for him and you know some of the other people on my team, you know, like 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 that, like Dan, for example, that you know their energy and their support and their like you know like balls to the wall, you know, hard work, lack of sleep, you know, random illnesses and tears and and angry spouses and nobody's been paid for six months, you know, all these things, but that common vision has kind of helped us stick together. And you know, when you have other people around you that are you know better than you in some areas or that support you or that have initiative and drive it's like the last thing i want to hire or have anywhere near my team is a guy that wants to come in go nine to five get a paycheck and go home <laughs> right like dude yeah. i'm literally trying to do this big thing here <laughs> i can't come micromanage you and say where's my my ui interface that you said you could do six months ago I, i'm trying to do other things with like government level stuff yeah. i don't need to worry about this but when you have people like on your team, like again, like a Satwant or a Diane, things get done. They yeah. magically happen. And if somebody's not doing their job, these guys are type to like say, screw it, I'm gonna do it. Yeah. You know, which is which is wrong. And they should be, you know, rewarded for that. The other people need to like get the boot. But when you have people on a team like that, same like with the for football or hockey or whatever, you have people that step up. You step up, you fill in the gap, you do what you can. And it's not about you. It's about the overall team effort pursuing yeah. that singular goal. I mean, that's like how special forces work in the military, right? Yeah. You know, I don't care that you and I had a disagreement yesterday. Our job is to get rid of that bridge. Let's do it as quickly as possible and get the hell out of here. And then yeah. we're buddies again. Right? And we'll talk about it later. That's right. Yeah, we'll talk. Yeah, we'll talk about it later. Let's, let's, let's take care of business now, and then we can sort the other stuff out later. But yeah, so again, so for as much as you know, I've been through all the things, and it's amazing all that. I would not be here without the other people. And this includes the investors too. You know, it's like, yeah. uh, I can go to an investor and get them give me a check and be okay, whatever. But, you know, when I talk to investors, I'm like, look, I've had great investors before. I've had some horrible investors, you know, and sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. It's very much like getting married. But 
I'm trying to do something different here. So when, when, before I take your check, when you become an investor, I want you to mentally shift so you're not on that side of the table where, where I have to come and negotiate with you all the time and explain things. I want you on this side of the table so I can call you up and say, hey, I screwed up. I lost this deal. This didn't work. I had to fire this guy. I don't know how to handle this contract thing. What do you think? And if I can't call an investor and be vulnerable and say, I don't know how to do this or I messed up, I need your help. That's the wrong investor, right? Yeah. But when you have an investor on your side, that's like, oh, dude, I've made like 30 companies and you know, I've done this and I've done that and I've got 12 degrees and whatever. Here's what you should do or here's who you should talk to or dude, I get it, man. I've been through some crap myself. Here's how I handled it. When you're yeah. able to have those kind of relationships, let me tell you, it makes everything, even if everything else is on fire, when you've got a good team and good backers like that, that have your back, that support you and help you out, you're going to get through the fire with something even cooler and better. And even if you don't, you still have the value of that personal connection, that relationship. And for any young person that's listening, the most important thing you can do for the next five or 10 years is develop your network. Nothing else matters as much as your network, because that's what's going to open up the doors. That's what's going to get you the deals. That's what's going to be like the random opportunity in the middle of the night. Hey, can you hop on a plane? I got this amazing thing going, but you got to get here in six hours. Those are the opportunities that knock on your door. They all come from people that you know or people that they know. And if you're out there partying and hanging out and you know, playing Call of Duty all day long, you may get good at Call of Duty, but you'll never get the opportunity knocking on your door. But your network is what propels you, what enables you, what facilitates you, and it, it's what creates that fertile ground for, for doing amazing things that you can look back on You know, when you're old and say, hell yeah, I made that, and that guy helped me get me there. So, wow, yeah. this this is this is amazing. I didn't do this on purpose. <laughs> but this, did I? I'm kind of rambling. <laughs> no, no, no. But this is perfect because this is actually the way that we end all of our interviews because we have two questions at the end of our interviews. I don't know how it happened, but you already answered pretty much the last one, which is what advice would you give to people, you know, moving to get into the industry? I guess you can be, you know, a little bit more granular about that. Sure. And then the other question, and you know, maybe you can encapsulate this in two, is if you could go back and talk to your, what would this be? Your comic book store. No, it would be after your comic book store. Your younger self, and it's like back to the future, and tell your, give yourself some advice. What advice would you give yourself? And then the second part is, you know, what advice would you give people moving into the industry? Yeah. Um, hmm. So for advice I would probably give myself, uh, it, it's kind of weird because the, the, the advice I think I want to give myself would ultimately change the entire course of my life, right? So, so for example, uh, it, it's one of my deepest, deepest regrets that I never served in the military. And there, there were a couple of reasons for that, mostly because you know, I was in a position where I had to help kind of take care of my mother as she was you know, kind of declining. And there was so uncertainty. Does she have six months or does she have longer, right? Right. Um, and then, you know, other, there were other aspects. I thought I could go to college first and take the officer path, but then that kind of got derailed. And then, you know, there's all these other, you know, family and financial issues. There was always something that kept me from being able to go and be free to do that. And I regret that so much because, you know, I grew up in the military. I love the military. I get military families and like, I know that the, all the, I love all of it. And I'm, you know, I'm really super proud of, of this country. And it's like, the experiences I had growing up in the military and overseas and all that, you know, I was exposed to so many cultures and so many people and just like, you know, you can make friends anywhere. Like the minute somebody says, yeah, I'm an army brat, 
you're instantaneously buddies. Nothing, nothing matters, right? It's like, dude, you know, I know, I know you've been there, right? And, and, you know, even like today, we have so many issues with race and politics and like all this just like crazy stuff. But for me growing up in the military, I mean, yeah, there was some tensions here and there, but first and foremost, A, you're American and B, you're like a military brat. And when you're in a foreign country, nobody speaks the language, right? You know, it's like those two things bound everybody together at the hip. Even if I hated you and you hated me and you bullied me and I bullied you back, it was like, hey, we're Americans and you step off, you, you know, guy like you're on the street getting harassed or whatever. Yeah. And like there was that, that bond there. And, you know, for me, it's like, that, that's also kind of why I do a lot of this stuff. Because again, I think that this tech is enabling. The and, connection, right. Yeah, the connection you mentioned earlier, that, that shared culture, that shared experience. You know, if, if I can actually talk to somebody in another country and get their perspective or, or somebody in a different state or in a different profession, if you don't travel, if you don't expand your horizons, if you only stay with the small, same, you know, homogenous group or, or homogenous or heterogeneous, well, whatever, the same similar sort of whatever is, you're going to miss out on most of the world and you're going to miss out having a better worldview. And it's like, you know, that, that's my contribution. So anyway, so regret, didn't join the military, but if I could tell myself to do it, I probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> I'd be right. doing military things, right? Yeah. Um, so that's number one. Number two, uh, uh, there's probably a couple of girls that I didn't realize liked me. And if I had known, I probably would have. So, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah that maybe you wouldn't have changed the timeline as much. In, right. in but that it, yeah, but it's really good advice to give myself, man. Pay attention. She likes you. Right. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a so, tough you, one. You know, what, what, it's all good. But yeah, so that's probably what I would tell myself. Yeah. And then, uh, what was the other half of the question? So uh, you already you already kind of gave advice when you were kind of dovetailing into the, when I asked you the question. Which, which is, what advice would you give people getting into the industry? Yeah, um, well, I, I'll, I'll touch back on that one again real quick. I think, so first and foremost is don't wait for anybody else, right? Uh, and, and if you ask people, how do I do X and Y, you're going to get a whole lot of advice, a lot of different things. Or, oh, go do this, go do that, go do this, go do that. But I would say if you're, you're new or young, or even if you're not young, if you're older, I think this is one of those things where you have to understand that A, there's a lot of opportunity, right? It's not just like, well, if you want to break into the game industry, you got to be a, an animator, a designer, a programmer, QA. It's really hard to get into and, you know, it, it's, it's just not easy. But in this case here, even though we're using game industry tools and tech, it's not that hard to go take a couple of Udemy classes to learn how to use Unity or Unreal and make a game. I mean, there's literally tutorials you can get for like 20 bucks or 50 bucks off of, again, Udemy, where in two or three or four weekends, they walk you through like literally line by line, click by click. You've just made a game. Now go back and just replace files. Suddenly you have a different game with different graphics and edit this little script. And now you've got an anti-gravity sort of game, right? So they're easy to learn if you have a, if just a little bit of time. It's not as complex as it was 20 years ago when you had to start off with figuring out what the hell is a pointer in C sharp? I'm sorry, C++, right? Or assembler, I got to learn like what language, you know, like, uh, uh man. No, these days a five-year-old can make a game, right? So YouTube don't be tutorials. <laughs> yeah, oh my God, YouTube is such a resource. Yeah. yeah, don't be afraid, leap into it. It's not as complicated as it sounds. You get quick results. But most importantly, it's, it's just do something. You know, if I had like 10 guys in the room that wanted a job, you know, there's two things I'm looking for. A, um, the first thing we look for is the guy that says, what do I have to do to get this job? Right away, he's number one, right? I don't care what the resume looks like. 
that's the guy that's going to be like, you know, dude filling in all the holes and getting shit done, right? So what do I have to do to get this job? That's the first thing I look for. The second thing I look for is, well, what have you done? If you showed up and you have no college degree, you're spending all night long working at Waffle House, and then you're going home and you're making the most baller, you know, mobile smart game that's just super cool. It's interesting and it's creative. I'm going to look at that and go, okay, you're cool. You're interesting. You're creative. And you had the initiative to actually just go and make something. And maybe it's buggy as hell. That doesn't matter. You made something. Being able to say, I made this horrible piece of crap with programmer art and it barely does anything, but I made it. I own it. This is something that I created. I slaved over. I would hire that guy in a second over somebody else that's got a fresh degree from pick your university. Because the guy said, I made something. I completed something. It's the same thing you tell authors, right? How many people do you know? I would like to write a book. I've heard you say that 500 times, man. Go write a freaking book. It doesn't matter if it sucks. Write it. Write it. Pay 120 bucks. Get an ISBN number. Stick it on Amazon for $2.50. It doesn't matter. It could suck completely. But you get to put author on your resume. And you can say, hey, I wrote and published a book. And then you'd be amazed that people are like, oh, uh, you're an author, Robert. You know, your opinion must have a lot of weight. And you know what, honestly, this is one last side note. This is the best way to win an argument with somebody. I wrote the book. <laughs> what, what's your response to that? There's no response to that, right? And yeah, people no like response. legit, they legit treat authors at a higher like status level. Yeah. So yeah, go write a book on something. But the important thing is, is just go, just like in Nike says, just do it. Yeah, it right. doesn't matter if it's perfect or if it sucks. The fact that you built it, it's a hallmark in your life. It's a statement. It's a flag in the ground. And that will open doors. And then you build it again. You can do it again and get better and better and better. And that's that's the secret. Build your network and make stuff. And the world will open up to you like an oyster with a gold, uh, you know, pearl in it. Who knows? Wow. Do they even have gold pearls? I, I don't know. <laughs> we can make them. We can, yeah, we, we, we can have make we'll, them. We'll make them. Wow, this is the mic drop. I don't know. <laughs> I want to even say anything else, you know, explode that mic. I do want to, because my creative director, Jim Franco's come along for the ride with, with me. We kind of have a shorthand too, you know, probably similar to the way that you were talking about with your co-founder. Um, so I'm going to see if he has anything to add or any questions, if he's still along here with us. Um, um, I am totally along. I just got off the train, so I'm just trying to find my exit. He's in Switzerland. <laughs> That's another uh, way. You know, we work. He, he lived here in Miami, and then cool. he moved to Switzerland, and we're able to work, especially now in, with technology having, you know, expanded the way it has. We're able yeah. to still work effortlessly. So, um, you just got off the train. Do you have a one question or any statements to make, Jim Franco? Uh, no, I, I think it's super, super cool what you're doing because uh, I've been trying to push it. Like it took me a year and a half to get the local opera house to start embracing some AR, augmented reality, a little bit of like interactive experiences through their uh, like websites and apps. And uh, I think it's super cool to see somebody that's already gone so much further with that. And it kind of like reinforces everything I'm thinking about. So super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So that kind of puts a cap on it, you know, because he also just taught himself. Now he was, he has some of the tools from before, you know, learning 3D Studio or knowing 3D Studio Max for mm -hmm. so long. But, you know, just like you said, just get out there and do it. So 100%. Thank you so much, Robert. This oh, has been you. an incredible interview. 
there were no sidebars if you thought there was any rambling or anything. You know, what we love to do here at Screen Heat Miami is creating an, create an environment where people just free associate and they say what's on their mind. That really gives you the, the inroads and the, you know, the, the real essence of the person. So thank you so much, Robert. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been awesome. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad I got to meet you. And uh, hopefully I'll be in Miami soon and we'll go out and, uh, you know, we'll do some crazy stuff. All right. That yeah. was a lot of rice. Like a Robert Rice. <laughs> sprinkle it down. Sprinkle it down. The industry is a changing. It's a oh, changing. Yes. Um, the industry is a Before we get into that change, we want to talk about a big change. And this is a change that happened in your mother country or one of your mother countries. My father country. Well, yeah, I guess my father country. Uh, yes, uh, my father is originally from Cuba, uh, from Victoria de las Tunas, and that's his province. And so this story is coming out of Yahoo News. Uh, the Latin Grammys occurred this week where uh, an unlikely song won Song of the Year, uh, Patria y Vida. Uh, and this is a very interesting song. Uh, and obviously it's, it's a rap song. It's in Spanish. Uh, it features Cuban artists, Randy Malcolm, Alexander Delgado, who's of Gente de Zona fame, uh, Yotuel Romero, Decimer Bueno, and El Funky. Uh, and so basically this song, which won Song of the Year, was actually one of the major catalysts for all the pro-democracy protests in Cuba this past summer, which has now bled into November. We just passed November 15th, which was the N15. And so for those that don't know, this latest round of protests was a result of so many uh, of these uh, democratic protesters being arrested in July and who are still being detained in prison today in Cuban jails uh, you know, for trying to exercise their, their right of free speech. And so the fact that this song not only won, but was so recognized by the Latin Grammys uh, as the, the song of the year, not only within their genre, but it really shows how the power of music and entertainment has such a far reach, not only in the entertainment spectrum, but the ability to address social issues, not only in our country, but in other countries like Cuba, uh, where there are so many issues. And, and I'm just obviously as a proud Cuban American, couldn't be happier that this song won uh, and that it's resonating, you know, um, not only within the Latin community, but within mainstream popular culture as well, which is leading to a lot of extra eyeballs and public pressure uh, for, for the Cuban regime to sort of change their ways. And, and so that's what, you know, literally happened. Uh, and I just have to note um, that, that one of the artists that worked on the song, Michael El Osorbo, uh, is actually still in Cuba. He couldn't go to the Grammys because he's actually one of the protesters who's currently sitting in a Cuban jail right now. There you go. Uh, yeah. And so that, that speaks volumes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I was feeling very positive. You know, a lot of people are on the fence about this, but, um, you know, when Cuba got opened up a bit and right. I took it for granted. And I didn't go to Cuba at that time. Uh, now I could probably still go on an educational because I do documentaries and different things like that. But um, you know, it was, it was very encouraging because you know you have people talking to other people, 
you get information piping in there. You were part of a huge initiative. I really, you know, when, when I knew that you were a part of that, I told you, you know, I would do whatever I could to help out with that, which is Connect Cuba, which was bringing, you know, internet there to Cuba. Right. right. And so, you know, it's our hopes. We, you and I both feel, um, and, you know, I'm not going to speak for you, but we have, we've had conversations about this, that media can change, you know, things. It can change the world. It could create movements. This is an example of, uh, and this is media, this is storytelling. This is a song right. that, you know, helped to spark a movement, but guess what? The song picks up, you have things then connected to the song and you have other stories. And right. this right. then is how a movement can really, really, uh, you know, continue. And that spark continues and yeah. becomes a flame. And then that flame tra it becomes transformative. So hopefully that flame uh, helps to create the type of change that needs to happen for Cuba. Yeah, absolutely. And look, not to say that a song or a movie or anything like that is going to actually be the real change. But like you said, it can be the spark plug. It can be sort of the, the emotional kind of thread that starts something. But more importantly, like you mentioned, the connectivity, right? So the fact that Cuba was able to have a moment, uh, which is being pulled back now, uh, and I like to say that Connect Cuba played a small part in actually giving the Cuban people access to information and communication to get their version of the story out, which was not allowed for so many years because everything in Cuba is run by the state, from state-run media to newspapers to any international communication that got out of the country was 100% run and controlled by the state. Uh, now that the Cuban people themselves are allowed to voice their own opinions. And we've seen so much social change in this country, right? Because folks have the ability to communicate directly yeah. and to broadcast the message that's not filtered by major media companies, how much change that has brought. So imagine yeah. in a close society like Cuba. And that's what I, I said, media, you know, I'm not saying necessarily a movie, you know, I'm not saying necessarily, but it could be a documentary. It could be you know, a little piece, you know, so a profile piece could be anything, but right. media um, helps to move masses. So, Absolutely. but, um, you know, our industry, like we said, is going through tremendous changes and something that we talked about in Screen Heat Miami, even a little bit before the shutdown of last year was that animation would mm -hmm. explode. And it has, I mean, it's just taken on a whole nother, uh, 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 wave and that is exhibited markedly by the Miami medium film market and i would say a thread that is one of the strongest threads at the Miami medium film market hmm. um mr adrian wooten uh -huh. he in terms of the push that is happening in the uk and adrian wooten um film commissioner the the UK, London. Extraordinaire. Extraordinaire. He's like the James Bond of film commission. Of film commissioners. <laughs> um, you know, his biggest drive was their drive towards right. animation and their support of the animation industry in the UK. And I would say that that was probably one of the biggest takeaways, that mm. that is a push that they're going towards. And I can understand it because animation, you know, my company does animation. Um, Although we do a lot of stuff with the animators connected, we don't have to. We can do animation and we do animation with, um, you know, crews around the world. So, you know, we have people in Africa, we have, you know, even some uh, animators in Pakistan, uh, 
all around the country here uh, and many areas around the world. All you have to do is to bring together the team and then the pipeline then handles, you know, that output of production. So you have more control. You don't know what's going to happen on set and even with the big budgets. So what's playing out with Black Panther and um, the lead actress, I can't remember her name right now. Um, she is um, an anti-vaccination uh, person. Mm-hmm. Hey, everyone has their own thing, but right. uh, you know, it has created you know some issues on that production. That's a multi-million dollar film. So right. animation allows for uh, more control. And ultimately, when you talk about millions of dollars and even you know smaller budgets, the more control that you have over the project, the more you're able to um, you know extract from the project and exploit the project uh, what what needs to get done. And right. so I just saw a show last night on Netflix. And, you know, I really loved it. It was amazing. I'm going to find the name in just a minute. As soon as I was finished watching that show, up pops another recommendation for an animated show. And then, you know, it was a live action show. And then two shows later, a recommendation for another animated show. So you're getting more of these. And when I say animation, I'm not just speaking on your Disney and Pixar uh, movies and those types. I'm talking about adult animation. Mm. So the, it has exploded. It's created this um, this lane that then dovetails into what is happening in the greater industry, a huge change. And that is um, aptly named the metaverse. Ooh, the, damn, you just, you're hitting me with so many things at once, Kevin. That's what the metaverse does. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's too many angles, but yes, absolutely. You know, pivoting from animation, which again is, you know, I hate to say it, almost, uh, you know, COVID proof in the sense that, you know, content can continue to be churned out um, independently of having folks physically in a room together. I think the best example we saw here during the pandemic, right, was uh, when South Park did their pandemic special, which was all done so quickly. I mean, we know that part of the reason of South Park's success over the years is how they're able to comment on popular culture so quickly because of the quick turnaround of their simplified animation techniques that allows them to comment on something that before it kind of goes out of vogue, right? Yeah. You know, so it's very much fresh. Not as live as like the Jon Stewart, you know, the Daily Show but, or anything like that, but it's it has this ability to react very swiftly to current situations. Yeah. And we saw that when they dropped this crazy pandemic special on us uh, <laughs> that they were able to produce. And there's a cool little behind the scenes that shows how the animators from South Park had to like take computers, set them up in their home, uh, establish really fast Wi-Fi so they can all connect to each other and actually create this really interesting piece of content at the height of the pandemic. Yeah. And I think the animation industry itself now is so ready for that to take place. Yeah. Uh, and to take advantage of those opportunities now and continue to churn out amazing content. Yeah, and, and it's evolved. I mean, even with my company, you know, we've evolved the way that we're able to, um, you know, get to the bottom line. And, right. 
you know, things are just, it's just moved a lot faster. Um, the name of the show that I was thinking of, it's called Arcane. So it's okay. more of an adult uh, animation, but uh, just so well done. And, you know, that's what you're seeing now. And I think that that's, you know, what is being moved towards. This is something in Japan that has already been uh, the norm, which right. is, you know, the adult animation. And I know that you're going to see more of that moving forward. I just wanted to talk about the metaverse because, we, you know, our guest talked about XR and That's right. the metaverse is as much about XR as anything. Uh, Facebook made a huge pivot three weeks ago. We knew it was coming. I think that they made that pivot faster than anyone anticipated. Maybe even the people at Facebook um, right. have been embattled, you know, so um, and they changed the name of the parent company to Meta. Right. The Meta to reflect their move into the metaverse. The metaverse, um, I think th they weren't even able to ramp up the, uh, you know, what the metaverse is uh, fast enough for that pivot. But yeah. what it essentially is, is this ecosystem of avatars, so you want to think, um, you know, your iPhone and you have this kind of 3D avatar on your iPhone, or, you know, if you have an Xbox and you create a character in the Xbox, that avatar, and it has an environment that it operates in, that's the mm. metaverse. So it's the next yeah. phase they're saying of what the internet is, which makes it more three-dimensional. Yeah. So your avatar then, instead of you interact with different people. And so the pivot that Facebook is making and the bet that they're making, and I'm not going to say it's the bet of the whole company, is that right. people then will become participants in this metaverse. Um, yeah. The timing, I think, could be the best for them because of, you know, we still have issues with, uh, with, the, with the pandemic. And right. so, you know. I mean, this, I was going to say, this is probably the biggest name change using the phrase meta since Ron Artest became meta world peace. <laughs> yeah, maybe he'll be able to, you know, get some mileage off of, off of his pivot. But, um, but then the following week, which is two weeks ago, Microsoft announced its metaverse. And so Microsoft's metaverse is based for the time being off of their teams their team's uh, um, outfit, right. which is their chat, you know, their um, outreach for people to mm. have telecommunication or visual uh, telecommunication. And right. so that's more on their enterprise size, the side, the business side. So, sure. you know, people are doing Zooms, they're doing the Google chats they're And, you know, you just kind of get burned out in terms of being able to, you know, get on, line and have to be seen you know we're men so right. you know we're not putting well, makeup and you know i was, I was gonna say i can't wait for the first cosmo article is cheating in the metaverse really cheating <laughs> that's already <laughs> happened that's already happened but um you know you can just imagine that the pivot for for microsoft uh, and their teams is going to be into you know their right. xbox and that universe and so now it's all about marrying all of these together into one unified metaverse. And then, right. you know, looking to see, you know, what comes out of that. 
And so right. then thrown into there are NFTs and thrown into there are so many other things. Um, I, I started a company with a friend of mine who's a, a, a partner um, in business for so many, so many years before all of this metaverse stuff was announced that deals with the metaverse as well. Right, right. Yeah, and right. animation. So metaverse and animation, you'll hear um, a little bit more about it. There's an article that just came out. It's based in Ireland, but it came out mm. in, the, in the Irish Examiner, which is the biggest publication um, there in Ireland. It just came out yesterday. And wow. so, you know, you're going to hear more about this metaverse because this is what it is. And then moving further, and it's great that we just had this interview, you're going to see how it's all connected with augmented reality and virtual mm. reality. And then in the real spaces and then holograms in the real spaces, um, this is an older movie, Minority Report, but I would suggest, you know, to watch Minority Report and you'll see <laughs> for, for better or for worse um, where things are headed. Um, My bet is on for worse, unfortunately, on this. <laughs> sure why I have Face that hunch. Facebook just announced the glasses that are like Google Glass. Um, right. But they're saying it's not like Google Glass, but it's kind of like Google Glass. Um, uh, and so you, <laughs> you're going to see more of these things. Um, you know, the, it's not going to be walked back. It's just going to accelerate. So, yeah. you know, we've missed a lot of uh, in a month and a half. Wow. How things yeah. have changed in just a month and a half. This industry is something else. But we're um, back, baby. We're we on are, top we of it. Back. Um, it. It's good to be back. Uh, a lot more to come. We have a, a lot of interviews in the can. I just want to get one shout out. We talked about women DPs, uh, Katie Williams, who mm. we interviewed four episodes ago. Uh, On our July 4th episode, special Americana edition. Woohoo! Is another rising uh, woman DP. And I She's wanted to great. give a shout out to Katie um, and all of our women directors of photography, cinematographers, and of course, all, all of uh, the women that work in the industry. Um, of course, we're all in it in solidarity. Uh, big shout out to our IATSE brothers and sisters um, that an accord has been made for the better, I feel. Um, and happy to be back. Yes, sir. Back in the saddle. Uh, <laughs> wow. So yeah, let's, let's do it again very soon. <laughs> I'm ready. Yep. And so until the next one, I'm Kevin Sharpley. I'm JL Martinez, and this is Screen Heat Miami. Dolly! Boom.